Welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. All right? Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Let's go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Hola, what's happening? K-Pasa, what's going down? What's happening? I hope everybody is being safe. I hope everybody is being using common sense. I hope everybody is doing what we need to do to get back to some type of normalcy along the world. So I want to give a special dedication to the people listening in Perth, Australia. I want to give a shout out to the people who are listening in Toronto, Canada. I want to give a shout out for those who are listening to the podcast in Pelleri, France. I want to give a shout out for those who are listening to this podcast in Bangladesh. I want to give a shout out to these people, to all the people, to the wonderful people who are listening all around the world, Vietnam, Australia, everywhere else in between. Welcome. Hello. What's happening? Glad to be with you. Glad to be talking to you about what's going down in the world of sports. Wendell's World of Sports is the podcast. And my name, of course, is Wendell Wallace, the one and only. Um, today on the podcast, man, I'm going to be taking a look at the next two episodes of The Last Dance, the documentary of the Chicago Bulls. Now, there's people out there, and there's writers, and there's prognosticators, and there are experts talking about, you know, who should we be giving credit to in, for, in terms of the last three championships that really solidified the legacy of Michael Jordan. He's the greatest of all time. He's the greatest basketball player. He's a legend. No one can be better than him, blah, blah, blah. What really solidified that and pushed him over the top, I think, more than magic or more than bird in terms of those from my particular generation, from those of the sports fans that I grew up with and followed basketball and followed sports in general. What made Michael Jordan, without a shadow of a doubt, the icon that he is today, really isn't about the shoes, really isn't about the dunks, really isn't about the footwear, isn't really about any of those things. It's about really solidifying the last three championships, which would give him six in eight years. So, who should be taking credit for that? Well, of course, MG, MJ, of course, uh, Scottie Pippen, of course, Dennis Rodman, of course, Phil Jackson, yes. Don't forget about Tony Kukoc, all right, gotcha. Luke Longley, yeah, all right, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Steve Kerr, hit some big shots without a question, without a doubt. But you know what? There's another group of people who helped the second three-peat. If you want to talk about maybe, for instance, who helped Jordan win the first of the three championships, it was the Detroit Pistons, and as Jordan has acknowledged that, the fact that that Piston team made his team and made himself better, it was because of the Detroit Pistons, which he said in the documentary, which led him to go ahead and start lifting weights and start becoming mentally stronger and mentally fitter and physically stronger, along with Scottie Pippen, along with Horace Green, along with all those other guys that contributed, that were the cornerstone, that were the foundation for the Bulls winning their first three championships, mainly talking about Jordan, the superstar, megastar, Scottie Pippen, the all-star, Horace Grant, just the really superstar. Oh, no, no, what did I say? Michael Jordan, the megastar, Scottie Pippen, the superstar, and then Horace Grant being the all-star. Those guys got to that level was because of the pains and the heartaches and the losses and the beatdowns that the Detroit Pistons put them through. So the first three championships for the Bulls, along with Jordan and Pippen and Phil Jackson and, yes, Jerry Krause, 
You also have to put in people like Bill M. Beer and Rick Mahorn and Adrian Dantley and Dennis Rodman and John Sally and James Buddha Edwards and Benny Johnson and Joe Dumarge and, of course, Isaiah Thomas a little bit later on in the podcast. I'll get into this whole dynamic between the relationship between Michael Jordan and Isaiah Thomas today. Man, doesn't it feel like it's almost like two, two 12, 12-year-olds? Well, Michael Jordan said you were an asshole. Oh, yeah? Well, you tell him that Michael Jordan is only the fourth best player I've ever played. So, of course, they're going to run back to Michael Jordan. Michael, Isaiah said that you weren't the best player that he's ever played against. Oh, yeah? Well, you tell him that he's an asshole. Gotcha. I mean, it's like, all right, guys, let's let's... Let's kind of move on. Again, I'll discuss that a little bit later in the podcast. So as I was mentioning before, I want to name the group of people when I talk about the last dance in the Chicago Bulls, mainly focusing on episodes three and four, the whole rise of Dennis Rodman and, of course, the rise of Phil Jackson, how he became coach in this whole uh, Detroit Pistons um, dynamic that they had in there. Of course, with all of that, I also want to give a shout-out. I also want to uh, give mention to another group of people who helped the Chicago Bulls become the Chicago Bulls, the team of the 90s, and in turn have Michael Jordan become the global icon that he is today. I'm, I'm not saying that if Jordan would have stopped, let's say, for instance, if Jordan never went back to basketball, right? Let's just say that he won his three championships in a row, he retired, went on to baseball. He would still be a top five all-time great athlete. He would still be up there with the Ollies and the Bay Roosts of the world without question. But what really solidified him to even, in some people's mind, jump even higher than that was his second three-peat. Again, I'm going to give you the group of people that helped Jordan reach that level, that stature. And it wasn't just Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, Tony Kukoc, um, uh, Luke Longley and such. So I'll get into that. And, you know, here, here's something I also want to get into here on Wendell, Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast, Wendell Wallace commentating, talking, verbalizing. Man, college basketball, college basketball, another highly regarded and rated high school basketball player is going to bypass college for the G League. So, of course, because of this, the NCAA response gave a response in terms of trying to curtail some of the momentum that's going toward the uh, idea that highly ranked five-star basketball, high school basketball recruits can go straight from high school to the G League. The NCAA is trying to put in some things that can kind of maybe halt the momentum. Is it a little bit too little too late? And really, is that even going to be good enough? I mean, I read somewhere where, you know what? You know how much Trevor Lawrence is really worth to the University of South Carolina? Trevor Lawrence is the uh, quarterback for the Clemson Tigers. I think he's only lost one game as being the starter for the quarterback. He won a national championship his freshman year, this is going to be a guy who, when he comes out next season, this guy is going to be just the, the end-all, the be-all. I mean, we're talking about the greatest prospect. You're going to put him in the same category in terms of prospects are concerned as John Elway and Andrew Luck and everybody else that you want to talk about when we're saying that, you know, this guy has a chance to be, be a Hall of Fame generational-type quarterback, Trevor Lawrence, quarterback right now, junior for the University of Clemson. Well, they did some type of study, which I read in Yahoo Sports. Dan Devine wrote about it. And he said that Trevor Lawrence is worth somewhere between $1.2 and $1.5 million to Clemson University. And they said that the one season that Zion Williamson had, the basketball player who played his freshman year, is only 
year in collegiate basketball at Duke when he should have been going to Georgetown, but he played it at Duke. They said that he was worth even more than the 1.2 that Trevor Lawrence was making at the University of Duke. So you're speaking about now, you put those type of numbers up to the NCAA and you're saying to them, really, and you think room and board is really going to be good enough? Well, Mark Emmerich, the president of the NCAA, has finally kind of come on board to say, yeah, we might need to do a little bit more. How much is that going to, how much more in terms of what the NCAA is going to do, be able to stop or halt the momentum from, and this is who the player that college basketball should be zeroing in on to try to do everything that they can to make sure that he plays basketball, whether it be Michigan, Michigan State, Duke, Kentucky, somewhere. Imani Bates right now is a guy out there in Saginaw, Michigan, somewhere out there in Michigan, who is the number one player in high school basketball, period which means that all these guys who are going to the G League, all these guys who are supposed to be number one draft picks and top right draft picks for the 2021 class, the guys who were seniors in high school this season, bypassing, going to the uh, G League. Imani Bates, a 15-year-old, was better, was rated highly more, uh, was rated more than those guys were. And again, he's only 15 years old. Now, they've been coy and kind of quiet about what their intentions are going to be because there's speculation that these next rounds of, NCAA, of uh, NBA negotiations with the owners and the players that the owners and the league is going to acquiesce and say the hell with the one and done rule and they're just going to go back to where it, to it was and have the players, if you're good enough, just go, if you're good enough in high school to go to the NBA once you graduate from high school or you're 18 or something like that, you can go ahead and do that. So there's speculation that, you know what, Amani Bates, he's so good. I mean, this is another guy who might have the opportunity to become the next LeBron James if he reaches the potential and the expectations that some people are, are, are putting on this kid in terms of his you know, talent and his potential going forward. Well, if I'm the NCAA, I'm trying to do whatever I can if I can at least get one season from this guy. One season, that's all we need. That's the player that I'm focusing on right now in terms of seeing what I can do to put down some measures and put down some rules and put down some things where, you know what, instead of maybe going to the G League or maybe if something falls through and the NBA doesn't uh, get rid of the one and done, that, you know, maybe there's uh, a situation in college where Imani Bates can say, I want to go ahead and do that and not have to go off and play in China, not have to go off and play in the G League, not have to go off and play in Australia. Would love to be playing in Melbourne. Would love to be, or was it Mel, is it Melbourne? Is it Mel, Melbourne? Is it Melbourne or Melbourne? Whatever. But going out there in Australia, Perth, Sydney, all those places, New Zealand, instead of having those guys have those options, they can go ahead and say, you know what? Playing in college, playing for Coach K, playing for Bill Self, playing for, you're damn right, Patrick Ewing is a much better option than going and playing somewhere overseas or maybe going ahead and even playing in the G League for a season. So this is going to be an interesting time for college basketball and for the NCAA in terms of what they could do to go ahead and put some things, some measures in there that would entice highly ranked basketball and football and baseball players and others to go ahead and go to college. And I'll even explain why I think that, again, there's another huge advantage for a lot of these five-star recruits and these four-star recruits to go ahead and go to college and play football and play basketball. 
There's another reason why. And it really doesn't have anything to do with, you know, NBA stock or NFL stock or what round they're going to be drafted. And it really it doesn't even have nothing to do with basketball or their profession, football or whatever. It has something to do more with the real life. It has something to do more with what you're going to be doing 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years down the road after your playing career is over, whether that be in the NFL, NBA, or college, overseas, Europe, whatever. So I'll get into that on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. Wendell Wallace, that's me, your host. Oh, man, the fallout from Green Bay drafting Jordan Love continues. You hear this Brett Favre deal? Uh, he's talking about Rodgers is not going to finish his career with the Packers. I, I've been telling you this before. I'm going to tell you again, man. It doesn't matter, NFL, Major League Baseball, NBA, if you play long enough, no matter how great you are, no matter what your legacy is, no matter how many championships that you've won, it doesn't matter any of that stuff. If you play long enough, eventually you are going to be playing for another team. Eventually, you and the team that drafted you, you and the team that you grew up with, you and the team that you had so many wonderful moments with, are going to part ways. It happened to Michael Jordan. It happened with Tom Brady. It happened with Johnny Unitas. It happened with Willie Mays. It happened with Babe Ruth. It happened with Patrick Ewing. It happened with Akeem Olajuwon. It happened with all of these guys. If you're going to be playing a team sport, just take a look. If you're going to be playing a team sport, even at the highest level, eventually, if you play long enough, you will go ahead and you will go and play somewhere else. Unless the rare exception being someone like a Cal Ripken or a Dirk Nowitzki or a Kobe Bryant or something like that. The, uh, well, Steve Young played in the USFL, bad example. But eventually, you're going to be playing somewhere else. So this hubbub that Brett Favre is talking about, oh my goodness, you, just, you know, there's a great chance that Aaron Rodgers is not going to finish his career with the Green Bay Packers. Yeah, because I don't think Aaron Rodgers is going to be wanting to retire in two or three or four years if he's still a really good quarterback. And I think it'll come a time where maybe it's because of the relationship that they've had. Maybe it's just because of them dealing with Aaron Rodgers for 13, 14, 15 years by that time. Whatever the reason's going to be, maybe the Green Bay Packers are going to stink and they want to start over while Rodgers is still good enough to win himself a a championship. I mean, whatever the reason is going to be, eventually this is going to happen. So the whole, oh my goodness, this is horrible. Can you believe what Brett Favre said? Yeah, I can definitely believe what Brett Favre said. Brett Favre lived it. (laughs) Brett Favre lived the damn thing when, oh, by the way, they drafted some guy named Aaron Rodgers. Do what? Eventually replace who? Brett Favre. And what happened to Brett Favre? Kind of got pushed out when he was still a guy that could be a very suitable top-tier quarterback, top 15, top 12 quarterback. So, yeah, this stuff really doesn't surprise me. So, I'll get into that. Andy Dalton being released by the Cincinnati Bengals. Where is he going to go? Jameis Winston signing a one-year deal with not the Pittsburgh Steelers, but with the New Orleans Saints. Interesting, interesting. I'll get into that. And I'm going to end the podcast today talking about my favorite team. Shut up. Shut up. I don't want to hear your nonsense. I don't want to hear your whining. I don't want to hear you. Oh, you're going to be talking about your town. Yeah, you're damn right. I'm going to be talking about Georgetown. Put them eyes back in your face. Stick that tongue back in your mouth. Straighten up them shoulders. No more pouting. Don't let me me have to give you a reason why you're going to be pouting. Turn that frown upside down. Yeah, at the end of the podcast, I'm going to be talking about my Georgetown Hoyas, Patrick Ewing. Another Jeff Goodman tweeted out something the other day, which got a lot of play. Uh, What was he talking about? It was Monday, this past Monday. Goodman was saying this Georgetown roster looks somewhat underwhelming. 
and it's now year four of the Ewing era. Still searching for an NCAA attorney bid, and Georgetown is pretty damn is a pretty damn good job. Last time I checked. Once again, I will explain why the criticism of Ewing is unwanted, unwanted and in some angles and measures ignorant to do that. So all the things I'll be talking about today in Wendell's world of sports. So glad that you could be with us. Man, before I start, let me groove a little bit. Hey, hey, um, give me something to groove with, will you? Yeah, give me something to groove with right about now. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So as I mentioned before, let's start things off by talking about what's going down with this last document, the last run, the documentary with the um, with the Chicago Bulls, episodes three and four. As I mentioned before, episode three centered on Dennis Rodman. Why was the trade made to begin with? It was, it was interesting when that trade was made. Again, I lived it. I was there. <laughs> but it was uh, interesting when that trade was made because... What it was, it was made out of complete and utter desperation. At the time, Chicago had nothing to lose. Everybody was talking about, oh my goodness, what a, what a gamble, this, that, and the other. Oh my goodness, Rodman going to the Bulls, what's going to happen? The relationship that he had when he was with the Pistons regarding Scottie Pippen and pushing him underneath the basket and how physical that he was with Michael Jordan being on the bad boy Pistons and how much animosity and hatred and vile there was between those two teams when they were going at it. Oh my goodness. What exactly going to happen when Dennis Rodman comes over to the Chicago Bulls? What, what is Jerry Krause and those guys doing? It was a situation where we had nothing to lose. The Bulls had nothing to lose. They had to do something. They had to swing for the fences, if I could use that cliche. Because the season before the trade, Chicago won 55 games. And Scottie Pippen was the second best player in the game. Now, this was the year that Michael Jordan quit, this was the 1994-95 season. 1993-94, they lost to the Orlando Magic in 94-95, won the title 95-96, or 72-10. So 93-94, the year that Jordan got out because of the gambling situation. Oops, ah, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, he wanted to uh, pursue his childhood dream of playing baseball so he could please his father who was no longer on this earth because of a senseless murder. So the year that Jordan was out, full season, that Jordan was out the 93-94 season for Chicago. I mean, they still held it together. Again, they won 55 games. Scottie Pippen elevated his play. He was the second best player in the game, only behind Akeem Olajuwon. 
He won the All-Star Game MVP. He averaged 22 points a game. And for the Bulls, I mean, they finished second in the Central Division, only behind Dominique Wilkins and John Battle and those guys. For Atlanta, they finished third in the Eastern Conference behind the Atlanta Hawks. And, of course, my Patrick Ewing-led New York Knicks. And again, they lost in the Eastern Conference semifinals to the Knicks in seven games. People are going to sit there and boo-hoo and cry talking about Game 5 where Hugh Hollins made that call on Hubert Davis, sending him to the line with very few moments left. They hit two free throws but win the game for, uh, for the uh, New York Knicks. And eventually Ewing in Game 7 had a monster game where the New York Knicks prevailed 87-77. I think that's what the score. Could you imagine that? A score now being 87-77. In this day and age of playing basketball, unbelievable. But yes, so Chicago definitely, in the year that Jordan was out, uh, overperformed, overachieved. But it was pretty obvious that they weren't the best team in the NBA. Of course, when you lose, at that time, the greatest player in the game, then of course you're going to be taking a step back and not be able to uh, have the same type of success that you had before in the years that Jordan was playing and winning those three championships before he uh, decided to go ahead and take a uh, unwanted 18-month vacation while they got this whole gambling situation under control with him and David Stern. So the 1994-90 season, Jordan had come back from playing baseball with the Chicago White Sox AA organization. He came back on March 18th and played the first game the next evening against Indiana. I remember, I think it was the third game. I think he went to uh, Madison Square Garden, dropped a double nickel on the Knicks, including a game-winning pass. It was a pass. How about that? I don't know if it was Bill Wennington, but I knew it was a center. He uh, spun off. Ewing came over to help, dipped it underneath to, I think it was Wennington, put it in for the layup. But that was the, oh, my goodness, Michael Jordan's bad game. I mean, he looked rusty in his first game back against Indiana, and there was so much hype and all this type of stuff. But, against, he came back wearing the number 45. So this was a situation where it was like, oh, my goodness, Michael Jordan is back. 55 points, you get the Knicks and MSG, this, that, and the other. The Bulls were 23-25 and 25 at the All-Star break, right? Jordan comes back. They finished the season 47-35. They went 13-4 and four with Jordan in the lineup, again, wearing number 34, I mean, number 45, winning 24 of their last 34 games. So, man, this, that, and the other is like, all right, Jordan is going to be back. Jordan is now is good enough. Because we still remember the Jordan from 1990, 91, 91, 92, 92, 93. This guy now is going to be having his sea legs together. He's going to come back. He's going to be in the playoffs, this, that, and the other. It's almost like for the generation who really didn't understand this because they were too young or weren't even born when Jordan was doing that, which makes me feel really, really old. But it was almost like, you know, LeBron James situation. You know how it is right now is about, you know, LeBron really don't doesn't care about the regular season because once you get in that playoff and LeBron turns it up or not, I'm not sure who in the hell is going to be able to compete with them. So it's like a situation where, you know, don't worry about the first year he came back with the Cleveland Cavaliers with David Blatt and the fact that they started off slowly and all these other things. Once the playoffs start and LeBron gets in playoff mode, everything is going to be just fine for whatever team he's playing on. That was the same scenario. Here we go. Scenario that Michael Jordan had back when he came back. Don't worry about it. Yeah, he looked a little bit rusty, but if you remember the Knicks game where he was great, you remember the fact that this guy is the best player in the game by far when he retired. You remember this is the guy playing with Scottie Pippen who elevated his game. You got to remember this is the guy who's being coached by Phil Jackson. This is you got to remember this is a championship pedigree. Blah 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 blah. So it was just a matter of for the Bulls once they got back to the playoffs 
everything will be cool, everything will be copacetic, right? Right? Wrong. The, they lost in the Eastern Conference semifinals. And this is where the turning point, this is, what, this is really the turning point in the career of Jordan and the Bulls dynasty of the 90s really started to take off right here, really started to formulate right here. This is the incubation part of Jordan becoming the global icon, the Michael Jordan that we know of today, the beloved Michael Jordan that we know of today. This is the impetus is where it started. The Eastern Conference semifinals against the number one seeded Orlando Magic. Chicago lost in six games to Orlando, including losing the deciding game at Chicago Stadium, 108-102. Holy shit. Now, MJ was good in that series. I remember watching it, of course. MJ was good. But he wasn't the MJ that we knew before his retirement. He didn't, he didn't have that burst. He didn't have that hang time. He didn't have that airness. You know, like when Ali, when he first left, you know, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. But when he came back and fought Jerry Quarry, came back and fought Oscar Bonavita, came back and fought Joe Frazier the first time, he wasn't floating. He was not floating. He was more, more grounded. You know what I'm talking about? That was the same thing with Michael Air Jordan. When Air Jordan came back the first time to play for the Bulls, it was like, well, damn, wait a minute. He ain't just, you know, he ain't blowing by Reggie Miller and these guys like he used to. He ain't taking off and making these spectacular dunks and dunking over Dinner Bell, Mel Turpin, and all these guys and these seven footers. He, he ain't the spectacular one that we, that we remember. And again, he averaged for the series against Orlando. He averaged 31 points, six rebounds, four assists, played 42 minutes a game, shot 47% from the field, only 23 from the three point line. And, you know, he had an injured pinky at the time on his shooting hand, and people were trying to sit there and say, well, you know, yeah, you're not the guy that we thought you were because, you know, you had this pinky, and this is the reason why. And Jordan, to his credit, was like, no, 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 uh-uh, nothing like that. Don't go there. Don't go there with me on that one. No, it's just I'm not playing well. I didn't play well the entire series. Fuck shit, damn me. So that series against the Orlando Magic was the start of the Michael Jordan that we know of today. I mean, he was already, again, at another level in terms of what he did as being in the marketeer, in terms of his basketball prowess, in terms of what he meant just as a, you know, a public figure, the way that he elevated the NBA. I mean, he was already there, but there were still some things, you know, I mean, before he won those three championships, the first time he won those three championships, as he mentioned before in this documentary, Jordan was a guy, oh yeah, you know, here's a guy who's more interested in winning scoring titles than he is NBA championships. I mean, this was a situation where, you know, how can you win a championship when there's never been a guy who has led the league in scoring actually win a championship. It didn't happen with Rick Barry. It didn't happen with George Gervin. Didn't happen with Wilt Chamberlain. Didn't happen with any of these guys. Now Jordan's coming in, leading the league in scoring, but yet and still he's always coming up short in the playoffs against a far superior team, whether it be the Larry Bird Celtics, whether it be the Isaiah Thomas-led uh, Detroit Pistons. Good grief, good grief, good grief. Great player, awesome, sells a lot of shoes, this, that, and the other, but can't win a championship. He won a championship. He won two championships. He won three championships. Elevation for Jordan goes up. The glamour goes up. The spotlight goes up. The reverence goes up. The greatness goes up. Then he goes away and plays baseball. Comes back. All of a sudden now against the Orlando Magic, a team that was young, a team that was hungry, a team that seemed to be the now team, the it team, took him out. 
And Jordan didn't have the same type of flight, the same type of explosiveness that he had the last time that we saw him. Oh, shit. Could we be watching Michael Jordan instead of being godlike? He's only going to be really, 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 really good-like. Are we now starting to see, dare I say, the decline of Michael Jordan? That was the talk. After the, I sounded like a New Yorker there, didn't I? That was the talk after uh, Jordan lost to the uh, to the Orlando Magic at that time. Because you got to remember, Orlando was supposed to be the it team. Orlando was supposed to be the team that was going to replace MJ and the Bulls at the team that the league was going to throw in the face of everybody. They were supposed to be the next dynasty in waiting, if you remember. They were going to be, you know, they were the next one. Uh, the Lakers, the Celtics, uh, sorry, the, you know, you started off with the Minneapolis Lakers, then you went to the Boston Celtics, and then you went to the Los Angeles Lakers, and then you had the Chicago Bulls, and then the next team in line for that dynasty, that all-time great dynasty was supposed to be the Orlando Magic. Because if you take a look at the players that were on the Magic's team, you had Shaquille O'Neal, who by that time was not literally and figuratively the biggest star in the game at that time. There's, you remember Shaq? He's up there doing movies, up there doing rap albums. You remember that uh, that little bit that he did with Foosh Dickens? playlist for a while i know in the remix of that song they had six foot four with a string of samson running over niggas like a rodney hampton that was pretty good <laughs> uh yeah so you know that was Shaq. that Shaq, that was the guy in terms of who's gonna take the spotlight now that jordan was going playing baseball you had this guy coming in from lsu who was physically nothing like we've seen before he was wilt chamberlain 2.0 he was wilt chamberlain on steroids, shall we say, not using steroids, but I'm saying he was the next evolution in terms of what Wilt Chamberlain was. You know how we talk about Luka Doncic is what Larry Bird would be if Larry Bird was playing in this, this era? Well, when Shaq came into the league, it was, if Wilt Chamberlain played in this era, this was what he would look and play like. That was Shaquille O'Neal. He was funny. He was gregarious. I mean, you know Shaq's personality. So, I mean, he was all of those things. You know, who's the number one pick? Me, Word is Born, not a Christian Leitner, not a lot of Alonzo Mourning. I mean, that was Shaq. And he came right in and he dominated. He dominated with his size and his physicality and his athleticism. He was going to Pete Newell's basketball camp during the summer so he could really in tune, fine tune his inside post moves and his inside game. Never learned how to shoot free throws. But, you know, Shaquille O'Neal was a dominant, dominant force who belongs up there with Wilt Chamberlain as two of the most physically dominating big men who has ever played the game. George Mikan was 6'10", 250, and dominated his era because they didn't have anybody his size. So I guess you could say as far as his physical girth and strength and overall advantage because of their size and strength, it was George Mikan, it was Wilt Chamberlain, 
And now here comes Shaquille O'Neal. And this was supposed to be the guy. This was supposed to be the cornerstone. So you had Shaquille O'Neal doing this thing. You had a guy who really, you could say, was supposed to be the heir apparent to Michael Jordan and Penny Hardaway. We know Penny Hardaway now is a guy who was a coach of Memphis, but Penny Hardaway was supposed to be the next mega superstar. Without question. You remember Little Penny with Tyra Banks? I mean, the NBA, Madison Avenue, everybody, the advertisers, they were building their brand in terms of the NBA around the Orlando Magic, around Penny Hardaway and Shaquille O'Neal. And in the second year in the league with Hardaway, who at the time was age, was 24 years old, he averaged 21.7 assists, four rebounds, two steals. He was a starter in his first All-Star game, NBA All-Star game. It was, it was named All-NBA first team. I mean, this was supposed to be the start. These two guys, Shaquille and Penny Hardaway, they were Shaquille and Kobe Bryant before Shaquille and Kobe Bryant. I mean, they were supposed to be the next guy when Jordan and Pippen, that's great, move, move aside, it was supposed to be now Shaquille O'Neal and Penny Hardaway. And you surrounded those two guys, Brian Hill with the coach at that time for Orlando, and you surround that team with guys like Dennis Scott, who at the age of 26 from Georgia Tech, Flint Hill, coached by Stu Vetter, had a chance to play against him when he was a, what was I, a junior? I think I was a junior in high school and he was a freshman. And I played with I played against him at Sidwell Friends. And that guy was 6'6", 225 then, as a 14-year-old. 6'6", 225. Yikes! One of the great thrills that I had playing against Dennis Scott. It was great, even though they killed us in that summer league all in that summer league game. But Dennis Scott at the time, 26, very good three-point shooter. You also had Nick Anderson. You had Horace Grant, who had come over from Chicago to the Orlando Magic. You had Daryl Armstrong, who could run on all day on a pot of coffee. I mean, these guys were supposed to be it. So after they beat the Bulls, they beat Indiana in seven games. They blew them out in game seven to reach it to the NBA Finals. And that was supposed to be their coronation. They were going to be playing the Houston Rockets. If you remember at that time, Houston finished, I believe it was sixth or third or something like that in the Western Conference, San Antonio with David Robinson and then a disgruntled Dennis Rodman was the number one seed being coached by Brian Hill. Sean Elliott was on that team and some others. Avery Johnson was on that team and some others. San Antonio was really good. That was David Robinson's best team before Tim Duncan came around and then allowed him to win two NBA championships. But San Antonio was the number one seed that season. They were supposed to be the ones who were going to win the NBA championship. But for the most part, the defending champions at that time, Houston Rockets, were struggling. They didn't have Vernon Maxwell. They didn't have some, a couple of other players. So they made a mid-season trade for some guy in Portland by the name of Clyde Drexler. And that really gave them a shot in the arm. And they weren't, they they weren't going to win that championship without him. But basically, Houston upset Phoenix with Charles Barkley. Then they upset San Antonio. Akeem put an ass-whooping on David Robinson. For some reason, Bob Hill decided not to double-team him. And my goodness, if you go ahead and take a look at the highlights of Akeem Elijah on school and David Robinson. You have to feel sorry for David Robinson and say, damn, coach, you're really going to make David Robinson look like a fool out there? Can't, you're not going to put any type of help on, a, on Elijah Wan? You're just going to let him do David Robinson like that? Damn, what the hell did he do to you? But uh, you know, going into that series, though, where it was Houston versus Orlando, it was a situation where now we're going to see the coronation of the next best team in the NBA, namely the Orlando Magic. They were supposed to just sweep by, or Akeem was going to be no match for uh, Elijah Wan. Akeem was going to be no match for uh, Shaquille O'Neal. 
There was going to be nobody out there that was going to be able to guard Penny Hardaway. Nick Anderson was going to be able to somewhat contain Clyde Drexler at the time. It was a situation like that. And they were swept. Orlando was swept in four games. They never recovered from losing game one at home. If you remember, Nick Anderson missed four straight free throws that would have won the game to set up Kenny Anderson's game-time three-point shot. I think it was a bank shot straight away. Lucky-ass shit, but it went in. Who gives a fuck? And then Akeem Olajuwon tipped in Clyde Drexler's missed layup with three-tenths of a second left in overtime. And Orlando never recovered, and Houston just went bonkers. Olajuwon had his way with O'Neal, which then solidified the fact that, yeah, this guy, Olajuwon, one of the best centers you've ever played the game, no doubt. Drexler went nuts. I still remember his end-to-end, coast-to-coast uh, dunks that he had, get the rebound on the defensive end, charge out down court, and then dunk it on folks. I mean, he was unbelievable. And that was the, like, end, really, if you think about it, of the Orlando Magic being the next it team and being the next dynasty team in the NBA. But I say all these things is because of this. When the Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan, when they lost that series to the Orlando Magic, and Jordan played like he did, he, he realized two things. Number one, I got to change my game. And that's when he started developing that three-point shot. That's when he started developing that fadeaway. That's when he started developing more of a low post game. That's when his footwork got a little bit better. So he spent the entire offseason. I mean, we know how Jordan is in terms of him not liking to lose. You know how Jordan is when it comes to being a competitor. I mean, we know the stories about Jordan not being a really gracious winner, or excuse me, gracious loser, and in some ways a gracious winner either. But that was the wake-up call that Michael Jordan needed, losing that series to the Orlando Magic, to say, damn, this is something where, you know, I've got to elevate my game even more. And I got to do it from the basketball standpoint, not from the physical. Yeah, I can get stronger, but my balance that I had in the first seven, eight, nine years of my of my career, that's gone. That balance ain't coming back. The athleticism that I had, that ain't coming back. So what am I going to do? How am I going to get back my rightful spot of being the best player by far in the NBA? Sorry, Carl Malone twice, but where and how am I going to get that? I'm going to work, I'm going to work, I'm going to dedicate, I'm going to work. And not only did Jordan do that, Scottie Pippen did that, the other players did that, and to his credit, Jerry Krause realized that I needed to do something. Now, if you remember the documentary, uh, episode three, he was talking about when the idea first was passed by him to go out and, and make a trade for Dennis Rodman, Jerry Krause was like, no, 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 fuck that bullshit, no. Ain't worth it. Ain't, this doesn't fit our culture, this, that, and the other. And then he was talked into it by an assistant scout to say, you know what, hey, he, he comes into this culture. He's a smart guy. He's a smart basketball player. He comes into this culture. This is something where Scotty and MJ can handle him. Spill Jackson can deal with them, can work with them. But it was also a situation where the Bulls had nowhere to go because the Bulls that were constituted as they were, they weren't better than the Orlando Magic. And in all actuality, that 1994-95 team for Chicago, they were better than the Houston Rockets. If somehow, some way, the Bulls would have made it past Orlando, past Indiana, and then make it to the NBA Finals, they wouldn't have got past the Houston Rockets. And even, even if they got past Orlando, they wouldn't have got past the Indiana Pacers. 
So these are the things that Jordan and those guys were really looking at, but he was really focusing on the Orlando Magic because that's where everybody was talking about. That's where the spotlight was being shown instead of being on Jordan. Now all of a sudden, Jordan, not sharing the spotlight, the spotlight was being taken away from him. And Jordan said, no, 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 no. I'm not having that. I'm not dealing with any of that. So because of the threat that the Orlando Magic presented for Jordan as he went on the back nine of his NBA career, gave him the motivation, gave him the purpose, gave him the direction to say, shit, I got to go ahead and I got to you know elevate my game. And then let's, once again, I did the same thing with Scottie Pippen and it did the same thing with Jerry Krause to go ahead and say, you know what? Fuck it. Let's go ahead and make this move. Because even if it blows up on our face, even if Dennis goes AWOL, even if Dennis drives Bill, uh, uh, Phil Jackson batty like he did John Lucas down in San Antonio and Bob Hill like he did in San Antonio, we've got nothing to lose. We have absolutely nothing to lose. So it was a situation where, hey, let's go ahead and make that deal. And what happened? The deal was made. Luke Longley, uh, excuse me, um, uh, Will Purdue. See you later. The trade was made for Rodman. Jordan rededicated himself. The Bulls went 72-10, and 10, beat Seattle in the finals. And the Orlando Magic, Shaq got injured, Penny got injured, Nick Anderson mentally never overcame missing those four three, uh, free throws. The bottom went out, and Shaq then went to the Los Angeles Lakers. Penny was traded to the Phoenix Suns because of knee injuries, and that was the end. So the tale of two franchises, the tale of two dynasties, the tale of two eras. And everybody talks about, well, you know, you know give credit for... Dennis Rodman and these type of guys. and then You know who really needs to get a lot of credit for the Bulls? And again, for Michael Jordan's legacy, for the Chicago Bulls' legacy. You know who deserves a lot of credit, even though they're, they're pretty upset that they have to take it the way that they did? Give some credit, give some special dedication, give some shout-out for the development of the greatness of the Chicago Bulls in the second half of Michael Jordan's career. Give credit to the Orlando Magic. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So, discussing the last dance, the dynasty of the Chicago Bulls, six championships in eight years, a team of the 90s, Michael Jordan solidifying himself as the greatest basketball player who ever lived, putting him in the same area code, zip code, VIP section as such greats, all-time public figure greats in terms of athletes as Ali and Babe Ruth and everybody else, put him right there. It was because of that last repeat. Thank you very much for the Orlando Magic for giving him the motivation to go ahead and reach that pinnacle in his basketball career. But speaking about the Chicago Bulls and what's going on, of course we have to talk about, yes, we know, we know, the big story from episode four. Dis- disrespect gate. Uh-oh, Isaiah Thomas and the Detroit Pistons walking off the court. After losing to the Chicago Bulls in the 1991 Eastern Conference Finals, it was the end of the 
Pistons championship era, you know, the 1986-91, those were the boys. You know, when you talk about Dennis Rodman and John Sally, Chuck Daly at the head coach, they finished first in the Eastern Conference two times, won the Central Division title three times. They were the two-time back-to-back NBA championships. They exiled Larry Bird. They put away Magic Johnson and the team of the 80s, the Lakers and the Celtics, the Pistons, put them out of the misery, put them to sleep. So, you know, it was a time where when Ch- – Chicago finally said it's over. And if you're a champion, man, if you're someone like Isaiah Thomas or Bill Lambeer or something like that, and you fought so long and hard to finally get to the pinnacle, it's almost like you can never have enough. I mean, you're never really satisfied. It's not a situation when the dynasty is over. When you know that it's over, you sit back and say, yeah, we had enough. You know, two back-to-back NBA titles, something that Larry Bird didn't do. And, you know, other than Magic, we were the second team to go ahead and do that. Set the Celtics dynasty of the 60s. And we did this and we revolutionized the game. We changed the game and we became megastars. And we, you know, this, that, and the other. So when the Bulls kicking our ass like this, yeah, I think it's time. So no big deal. Nah, man, when you're a competitor like Isaiah Thomas and such, you know you're not going to have that type of attitude. So, you know, walking off the court court before the game was over after losing, Isaiah Thomas says he regrets doing that. I don't think he should. I mean, it's like, well, you know, fuck it. I don't like losing. Well, you know, sportsmanship in class, fuck sportsmanship in class. I'm not being paid to be sportsmanlike and have class. I'm being paid to win basketball games. I'm being paid to win championships. No one's paying me to be a great guy. Guess what happens when every time we lose a basketball game, I go ahead and shake somebody's hand and show good sportsmanship. If I do that long enough, guess what? I won't be playing in the NBA. Guess what? I won't be able to have that excuse. Well, you know what? Isaiah Thomas, underwhelming, underachieving, not getting it done, not winning championships. But you know what? The boy, that guy's a great sport, isn't he? Woohoo! Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, David Robinson tried that bullshit. You know, the Admiral, oh, you know, great guy, this, that, and the other. And until Tim Duncan basically was came along and saved his reputation and saved his legacy, the mark on or the knock on David Robinson was, well, David Robinson's too nice of a guy. He's too intelligent. The guy's an officer and a gentleman. That's not going to make it in the NBA. He needs to be tougher. He needs to be meaner. He needs to be more, I don't know, what, more ignorant and arrogant or or less civilized? I don't know. But, you know, that bullshit about, oh, you know, you need to show good sportsmanship. Fuck that sportsmanship nonsense. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll take the same deal as Bill Lambeer said. He's like, you know, I did what I did. Fuck it. What, you know, what are you going to do? I mean, we, 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 the way it is. So, I don't, I don't, I don't really, you know, Isaiah's Isaiah. I, I don't know the guy. Never met the guy. Never talked to the guy. But, I mean, Isaiah's being Isaiah in that regard. You know, talking about, you know, if I knew now I shouldn't have done it, then, you know, come on. I, it, it is what it is. If you lost a championship or your, your, your championship run was over, I'd probably do the same thing. Maybe that's one of the reasons why I'm not, like, piling on Isaiah Thomas. And look, Isaiah Thomas is an easy mark, mark to be piled on. I mean, you know, if if anything went wrong in the world during that time, you know, Isaiah Thomas was to blame. And I mean, some of it was his doing. Some of it, I think, was unfair. Some of it just came from the fact that the way the the Detroit Pistons played, no one liked them. No one liked the way Detroit played basketball. They thought that they were dirty. They thought that they crossed the line too many times. They thought it was bullshit basketball. It wasn't real basketball, so fuck you. In terms of when we beat you, we beat your ass, fuck you. So it was a little bit different than, say, the Los Angeles Lakers, who were Showtime, or maybe the Boston Celtics, who were that blue-collar, lunch-pail-type basketball team, but they didn't have the physicality 
or crossed the line so many times that the Detroit Pistons did. I mean, you know, for Boston, for the Boston Celtics, and sitting up there talking about any Boston Celtics fans during that time talking about, well, you know, the, the Pistons didn't have any class, and Isaiah Thomas didn't have any class, and the Pistons were taking it too far, and they were too physical, and this, that, and the other. Uh, for you Boston Celtics fan, I bet you, I bet you that Kurt Rambis is sitting there talking about, really? Because I remember a game five back in the 1984 NBA Finals when I was going to the hoop for a layup and I got clotheslined by Kevin McHale. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, you guys are talking about uh, Detroit being dirty and all that kind of stuff. Oh, hold on for a second, Chief. Uh, does anybody remember the Boston Celtics having somebody named Danny Ainge on their team who got in fights and got his ass kicked to seem like on a nightly basis? Whether it was Tree Rollins kicking his ass, whether it was Sidney Moncrief kicking his ass. I mean, remember the brawls that were started by Danny Ainge just basically being Danny Ainge? Yeah, so before the Boston Celtic fans start sitting up there talking about, oh, yeah, the Detroit Pistons, too physical, too physical, too dirty. Eh, I, yeah, kind of temper those thoughts and opinions when you go down that avenue in terms of talking about the physicality or the dirtiness of the Boston Celtics. So basically, they won the championship in 82-83, no, 80, it was 83-84, that seven-game series against the Los Angeles Lakers. How? By being physical with them. Maybe not maybe not to the level of dirtiness as maybe the Detroit Pistons were perceived to be, but, uh, you know, Boston in that series, you know, that Magic and those guys at the time, yeah, uh, they didn't cross the line. They came real close to it. Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us talking about the last run, the documentary of the Chicago Bulls in episode four, mainly that centers around Isaiah Thomas and the Pistons walking off the court. I don't, listen to but um, so this whole deal, I remember listening to something that uh, John Sally said in terms of uh, walking off the court after game four when the Pistons dynasty was over. So what happened is, um, Bill and Bill leans over and says, let's hand them the Eastern kind. Let's hand them uh, the torch like it was hand to us. Handed to us. 1988. Adrian Dantley's on the foul line in the Silverdome. And all of a sudden, all the Celtics start walking through us as the guys are on the foul line. Celtics are leaving the court. Larry Bird, Paris, Isaiah standing there, and we're just watching these guys walk off while AD is taking a foul shot. And out of the blue, Kevin McHale looks back at Isaiah and says, bring the trophy back to the East, and gives him a five and walks through. And we're like, what in the world? You'll find it on camera. So Bill Lambeer says, let's give them the torch like they gave us the torch. I lean over to Chuck. I get up. I said, Chuck, I said, hey, let me get back in the game. He goes, come on, Sal. You can't get any more stats in your head. I said, nah, there's some shit going down. I don't want to be a part of You need to put me back in the game. My mans and them are down there. I This is how I am. I will kill you from start to the double zeros. Then I have to go back and become human. A lot of people can't transfer that. I do. I understand it's a it's a game I'm playing. So Chuck puts me back in. 
So I don't walk off because I'm on court. But we have to follow the captains. The thing that made it look bad is Isaiah went this way and built it, and then Isaiah like dipped around him. And it looked like he was trying to get away from Michael, the way it looked. But they stopped, they hugged Jack McCluskey, because we realized this is it. This is this was our 15, our three years. It was really, you know, our it was our three years, our four years of this is it. It's over. Yeah, so there you go. Bill Lambeer said, let's give them the torch like they gave us the torch. We're speaking about the Boston Celtics. No, and I remember that. I remember that. I remember Larry Bird walking off the court. He wasn't shaking hands. And I think Larry Bird was quoted as saying, no, I wasn't going to shake their hands. No, I'm not shaking hands. When the Celtics and the Lakers played, Larry Bird wasn't shaking anybody's hands. He wasn't showing good sportsmanship. He admitted it. And the fact that he didn't like the ball. He didn't like the Detroit Pistons. He didn't like the way they played. Remember that throwdown that he had with Bill Lambeer? At the, uh, I don't remember what game it was. I remember it was at the uh, Silverdome where Bill took him down hard after Larry Bird gave him a pump fake, got Bill in the air, and he wasn't going to let Larry get off the shot. So basically he just double chopped him, and Larry Bird said, fuck you, let's go. While they were on the ground, threw a, threw a right hand, and that started a fracas. So no, Larry Bird wasn't going to be sitting up there shaking the hands of guys like you know Rick Mahorn and Dennis Rodman and those guys. Fuck those guys. So that's Larry, that was Larry Bird's attitude. Now, I remember watching that game, and you saw that Larry Bird walked off the court before the game was over. Kevin McHale was doing the same thing, and that's when he came over to Isaiah Thomas, or Isaiah Thomas came over to him, and that's where Sally was talking about, where McHale was talking about bring the chip, bring the trophy back to the East, bring the trophy back to the East, and that's where uh, Zeke and uh, McHale gave each other a pound. Lambeer tried to get in there, but McHale said, fuck you, not, not having it. But uh, so it was, it was that situation. So I, I remember that. I remember that. So I, I, I do remember Jordan talking about, well, you know, I mean, the time that we lost to uh, Isaiah, I went over and I shook their hand. And let me tell you something, man, that's the last thing I wanted to do. I was so disappointed that we lost, but it shows good sportsmanship. Well, I, it just, I don't believe in that sportsmanship bullshit. I don't believe it in college. I don't believe it in the NBA, man. Your job is to win basketball games, not be friends with everybody. I'm not going to, I mean, LeBron, remember when LeBron lost? in the Eastern Conference Finals to the Orlando Magic, and he walked off the court and he got a whole big, can't believe this is a poor sportsmanship type of nonsense. Remember that kind of nonsense? I'm like, man, who cares, man? If you, you ain't going to shake hands, you ain't going to shake hands. You know, I, Larry Bird, look, on, on the court, Larry Bird was an asshole, okay? He talked a lot of shit. He wasn't there to make friends. He wasn't there to be a sportsman. He wasn't there to be a good role model for kids. He was there to win the basketball game and kick your ass and make you not want to play basketball anymore. That's what Larry Bird did. And that's what we love Larry Bird for. He wasn't there to dap up folks and to help people off the floor on the other team if they knocked them down. He wasn't in there for any of that bullshit. He wasn't in there to get in a prayer circle and pray and thank the Lord for the gift that he's been given and the opportunity to play this game tonight. He wasn't there for any of that shit. He was there to win basketball games. He was going to do it any way humanly possible. So I don't know why Larry Bird gets a pass for him walking off the court, and he verified it. It wasn't something like, oh, you know, after the game was over, I went to the Pistons locker room and I shook hands. Or, well, I didn't know if the fans were going to rush the court, so I just decided to leave the court before anything silly happened. No, it wasn't any of that nonsense. Larry Bird will tell you straight up, that's not what I do. I, I don't, I'm not shaking hands with the guy who just beat me, period. End of discussion. And it was easy 
for Bird and the rest of those guys to have that type of attitude because, again, everybody at that time, I shouldn't say everybody, but a good number of people, a good number of fans, a good number of the media, and I'm quite sure a good number of folks in the NBA offices didn't like the Detroit Pistons, didn't like the way they played, didn't like their style of basketball, didn't like the brand that they played. So it was a matter of good. When the Bulls beat them, good. The dynasty is finally done. It was almost like that dark cloud had finally been lifted. And then the ray of sunshine, which was Jordan and the Chicago Bulls, were now shining through. And it was a situation where it was like, we can really go full bore now into uh, anointing Michael Jordan as one of the greats because he just overcame a hurdle by being in the Detroit Pistons. Now he's in the NBA Finals. Now if he can get by Magic in the Lakers, ooh, what a juicy storyline that's going to be, huh? Magic versus Jordan in the NBA Finals. And if he can get past uh, Magic and do a thing, we've got ourselves a guy that we can ride the coattails on and raise this league, raise the profile of this league to heights unforeseen before if Jordan can go ahead and do this. And that's exactly what he did. He beat the Pistons in outstanding fashion. He beat the Los Angeles Lakers in outstanding fashion. Outstanding fashion. He had arrived. Without question, the league truly had themselves the next global iconic superstar, or at least the potential for a guy to be the next global iconic superstar. He already laid the foundation with the way that he played, his style, the baggy shorts, the earrings, the, the swag, uh, the, 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 the way that he played the game, the, the, the flow, the style of play, that foundation was already there. The only thing that was missing was him being a winner, him being a champion. And when he got past the Detroit Pistons, and then he got past the Chicago Bulls, basically announcing that the league was there. you got to remember that year that Jordan won his first championship, the Bulls won 67-15. When he won that championship, good Lord have mercy. He got something going. The league has something going. But again, this whole deal about, oh man, Isaiah Thomas, bitch move, this, that, and the other. Hey man, it was, maybe it was also the fact that, you know what? When the Celtics did what they did to the Pistons, they didn't have the camera angle of the Celtics walking. I don't even think they even walked by because when they beat, when the Pistons beat the Celtics, they played at the Superdome. When the Bulls beat the Pistons to end their dynasty, they played at the Palace in Auburn Hills. So to get to the locker rooms or to, to leave the court, the Pistons had to go by the, the, the um, Chicago Bulls bench. I wonder, because, so the optics of Isaiah Thomas kind of ducking his head and kind of cowering as he went through and Jordan and kind of giving him that blank stare like, what the fuck are you doing type of deal? Like, really, you're going to do this to us? I think that was, that was also some bad optics that kind of lended more toward, you know, Isaiah Thomas with a bitch and this, that, and the other, and Lambeer the fucking asshole and this, that, and the other shit. So I think all of that kind of baked in. So we didn't get the opportunity to see Bird and and, uh, and, and DJ and Ainge and Parrish and those guys. They had a different route to their locker room to where they didn't have to pass by the Detroit Pistons bench and ignore them or disrespect them like that, if you want to call it disrespect. So I think, every and again, Boston Celtics, beloved at the time, Larry Bird, icon, all-time great, this, that, and the other, helped save the NBA, blah, blah, blah. Isaiah Thomas, not well-liked. So, you know, it was 
everything baked into one. But all of this nonsense about, you know, all the flack that Isaiah Thomas gets, Isaiah should own it in terms of, yeah, that's exactly what we did. And no, I don't regret it. That's the way it was. If Jordan wants to call me an asshole, that's fine. I'm still living. Don't worry about it. I mean, I'm not going to, if I am an asshole, then, you know, that last time I checked, you can't get arrested for it. You know, you can't be charged with being an asshole. That carries no jail time. You can't get a ticket for it. You can't get fined. You don't have to show up in court. So, I mean, it is what it is. So, I mean, you know, I got my life. He's got his life. You know, he's got his deal. I got my deal. Fuck him. So, you know, I always thought the Pistons place in terms of what they did in the NBA during that time is secure. So, and that just kind of also just, I, I almost think that it would have been so anti-bad boy Pistonish for them to sit there and start shaking hands and dapping and giving hugs and all that kind of stuff. And I don't even know, I don't even know the way that that series before when the Pistons beat the Bulls, that was so physical. And I think that there was so much dislike between those two. I, I don't even know how the Bulls would have even reciprocated if Isaiah and Lambeer and those guys came over and said, good game, let me give you a hug, let me give you a dap, let me give you some words of advice. I, I don't know how, you know, Pippen and uh, you're talking about Dennis Rodman who threw, basically he threw Scottie Pippen into the fourth row of the, of the arena. Now he was kicked out by that time, but I mean, that was sort of like the deal. I mean, there was a lot of chirping. Mark McGuire was doing a lot of bullshit chirping. I mean, you know, so it would have been interesting to see how, the lack of warmth, I'm guessing, that the Bulls would have given the Pistons if they stayed around till the end of the game to shake their hands. I'm quite sure the Bulls would have been like, yeah, get the fuck out of here. You know what we're going to do now? We're going to start celebrating on your home court. Not only did we end the dynasty, not only did we put you motherfuckers out the pasture, we're going to go ahead and we're going to celebrate our Eastern Conference Championship by celebrating right in front of your fans. F-U-C-K-U. Damn. So... I think it was a situation where, you know, if I'm dating Isaiah Thomas and those guys, fuck him. I'm gone. I'm gone. And years, decades later, I don't see anything wrong with what the Pistons did. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. So, speaking about what's happening between the Detroit Pistons and the Chicago Bulls, the bad blood still exists between Isaiah Thomas and Michael Jordan and Jordan and the Pistons and Lambeer and everybody and all those good things. So, when, <laughs> I like this, it's like when Thomas reacted to Jordan calling him an asshole, one thing about, um, one thing about Isaiah Thomas, it's, it's a deal where it's like, you know, I bet you, if I met, look, I'm, I'm a nobody podcaster, all right? You know, I did some radio work in Phoenix, and I started my career in Baltimore. Thank you very much, Bob Haney. And, you know, I've been around a little bit, did a little bit of stuff in uh, Las Vegas. You know, I'm a, I'm a guy who's been in the broadcasting business for 20-something years. No, going on 20 years, I think, right now. Wow, it's been that long, huh? So, you know, I've got a situation. Uh, I've interviewed John Wooden. I've interviewed um, Chicken Ray Leonard. I mean, I've, I've done some things in the in the broadcasting world. But for the most part, you know, I'm a no-name who gives a fuck about broadcaster, right? Podcaster, right? No one knows me yet. 
But you know what? If I bet you, if I met Isaiah Thomas and I had something that would benefit him, man, I bet you that guy would just be so charming and so sweet and so wonderful. And I would go away saying, man, what a great guy. What an awesome guy. Isaiah is the greatest, man. This, that, and the other. He just charms your ass, you know? It's like if you don't, I don't know if the word conning is, I don't know. Conning seems to be a little bit strong, but it's like Isaiah has that personality and that charm and that smile and that grace and that intelligence to where, you know what, man? I mean, it's like, sure, you want to take my wife, go over and fuck her? Sure, sure go ahead, baby. Yeah, go ahead, yeah, Isaiah. You command this, that, the other. Or you want to give me, you know, what, 50 bucks along to go with that? Sure, no problem. Yeah, great. Here's my wife, this, that, the other. It's, I mean, Isaiah has that type of just charm, this, that, and the other. But we know Isaiah at times can also be a snake. Sometimes Isaiah can also be one of these underhanding, you know, smiling in your face while someone comes from behind and stabs you in the back. You know what I'm saying? It's like one of those deals with Isaiah Thomas. And it's like, so, you know, Jordan knew that. And if you took a look when, yeah, you know, the look that Jordan gave, I guess future meme coming up, the look that Jordan gave when, because he was talking about, you know, I don't care what Isaiah says. I mean, the bullshit, what he did about walking off the court and this, that, and the other. And so when the guy who was doing the interview with Jordan during the documentary, he gave him the iPad and, which had Isaiah explaining that, you know, he shouldn't have done what he, what he did. You know, uh, Jordan gave that look of incredulous, like, yeah, uh-huh. See what I mean? Told you. Yeah. Because he was like, yeah, you know what? You know, he's going to probably sit there now after he's had decades to think about it and see where the wind is turning and this, that, and the other, see where public opinion is. So, you know, Isaiah the politician, Isaiah the snake, Isaiah the con man, he's going to sit there and be like, oh, yeah, no, I, I, I regret it now. Oh, yeah, this, that, and the other. So, of course, when Isaiah said that I regret it, Jordan gave that look to the producer like, yeah, see what I mean? Told you. Get the fuck out of here. This guy's full of shit. So, it, it, it's funny because, you know, look, I've always said this, especially this is the first thing that came to my mind when Jordan was down here just ripping Thomas a new one and you know basically kind of confirming everything that we thought in terms of Michael Jordan's relationship with Isaiah Thomas or his thoughts and feelings about Isaiah Thomas, the, the person, basically calling him an asshole. The first thing that I thought about was, MJ, you calling someone an asshole? In this situation, in some regards... It takes one to know one. All you have to do is just read some of the stories of Michael Jordan about his selfishness, about some of the stuff that he does. I remember, I guess it was Chef, uh, Seth Wickersham. I don't know who it was, but when Michael Jordan turned 50, ESPN had this long article and piece about Michael Jordan. You know, the fact that, hey, you know what, at 50, I might, I might come back. You never know. He was talking about that, you know, at the time, of course, he's the owner of the Charlotte Bobcats, and him and his beautiful wife and a couple of friends went on a wasn't a cruise, but you know, got himself a yacht or something like that. I don't know, you know, how, how rich people do. I have no idea how how they work, how they operate, or how they live. I wish I did, but I don't. Never will, unfortunately. But you know, they was talking about you know, he got himself a yacht, went out there on the uh, on the out there to to France and lived it up and had fun, and he came back from the vacation and he was 261 pounds and he was mortified and he couldn't believe it that he had gained so much weight. So he went in and he trained because he was like, you know what? Hey, I'm going to shock the world, y'all. 
I am going to shock the world. I am going to come back and play basketball when I'm 50 years old. Now, was he doing that for out of hubris? Was he doing that for motivation to lose some weight? Was he just doing that to bullshit with people? Knowing Michael Jordan, I don't know Michael Jordan. But from the stories of Michael Jordan about his competitiveness, I wouldn't guess, I wouldn't, you know, dismiss the fact that he was maybe, possibly, possibly, maybe, somewhat, a little bit of an idea to try to come back, see what he can do at the age of 50. So, you know, he came back, tried to get a little bit of shape, dropped, I believe, 14 pounds. He went from 261 to 247 and this, that, and the other. But, you know, he was out there running with some of the guys on the Bobcats at the time and doing some other stuff. And he kind of had to go into a room all by himself or kind of keep away from other folks because after he finished working out with those guys, he was in so much pain that he couldn't walk, you know, in terms of, you know, he was feeling it, the fact that, I don't know, he was 50 years old trying to compete. Even the great Michael Jordan, even one of the greatest basketball players and human specimens who ever played basketball, Michael Jordan, yeah, at 50 years old trying to run around with guys half your age who are professional elite athletes, yeah, that might not be a good idea even for the great Michael Jordan, but you know, so, so so basically, we all know about Michael Jordan's competitiveness. And there was a story in that piece about when Michael Jordan turned 50, you know, the fact that he was trying to try to lose some weight because he wanted to see if he could play basketball again when he was 50. There was also, you know, reminiscing about when Michael Jordan, with the great Michael Jordan, and there was a story where, you know, when he was, when he was doing a shoot for a commercial or something like that, he would have a trailer. And I guess on one of the shoots, someone brought him, would, each day would bring him some muffins or some some sort of pastry. So you know, Michael Jordan also had detail. You know, they'd have security because he's Michael Jordan, right? So what Jordan would do was he would get the pastry, right, from whoever brought it to him. Homemade, smells good, this, that, and the other. So what he would do was he would take it back to his trailer and before he would go out to do the shoot, he would spit on the muffins or spit on the pastries to make sure that nobody would come in and take any. Seriously, go ahead, ESPN, look at you know ESPN Michael Jordan at 50. It was a long, it was a very good uh, piece written. I forget who it was now. It might have been a Wickersham. I don't know, but I just remember reading that and going, wow, Really? This guy's actually going to, first of all, that's disgusting. He's actually going to spit on the muffins or on the pastry just to let everybody know not to touch him? What what point is that? If you want to be an asshole, just say, just go up to your, just go up to your security detail and say, look, here's some muffins. If there is one crumb missing, if there's one muffin, pastry, whatever missing, I will fucking fire your ass on the spot, and I will make sure that you never work anywhere again. Period. Comprende? I mean, if you really wanted to be an asshole, look, I've been accused of being selfish, especially when it comes to food. So it's like, hey, I, I, I understand the territorial part. You know, I have, I have stories of me hanging out with my friends, and I'm hungry, and I get a pizza, <laughs> and a pizza comes to me, and I'm eating it. And they look at me and say, can I have a slice? And I say, no, get your own. Big, large pizza. Yeah, I'm going to try to eat all of it. And the ones, and the stuff that I don't have, I'm going to take it home and eat it later. But no, you're not getting a slice. You remember this one girl, me, Jerome, and this one girl. I was over 
and this girl was paying all this attention to Jerome, right? Oh, there's any other, there's any other, you know, just basically blowing me off. The two of us were friends at the time, and she's up there spending all her time kind of concentrating on him. I don't know, maybe she wanted, I don't know, maybe she wanted some relations with him. I don't know. But, you know, she's up there just completely ignoring me and just disrespecting me. I'm like, fine, okay. So I went ahead. I was hungry. I ordered a pizza. You know, Jerome knows everything about me in terms of when I order food, don't ask because I'm not giving you any. So I get the pizza, and all of a sudden now, she's all of a sudden now trying to be my best friend, right? Now all of a sudden she wants to engage in conversation with me. Now all of a sudden now she wants to be warm and friendly to me. Fuck you, bitch. You ain't getting shit. I didn't give her one fucking slice. She looked at Jerome like, really? Is he serious? And he's like, yeah, he's serious. Shit, if I ain't gonna if I ain't gonna sleep with you, you ain't my girlfriend, and the way that you treated me throughout the previous three hours, now all of a sudden you're gonna be up here talking about, oh, this, that, and the other, Wendell, this, that, and the other. Fuck you, bitch. You ain't getting shit. I'm gonna eat this right in front of your fucking face. You can either leave or stay and take it. But bingo, you ain't getting shit. So when it comes to being foul, when it comes to being an asshole, when it comes to food, hey, I mean, me and Michael Jordan might be on the same wavelength. But I'm definitely sure I ain't going to spit on my food to make sure that no one, hey, um, Jerome, I'm going to the bathroom. Oh, but before I do, <laughs> yeah, just in case y'all want to get a slice. It's like, what? <laughs> but that was Michael Jordan. That's an asshole. That's being an asshole. I mean, I don't care that you are Michael Jordan. That's being an asshole. So, again, Michael Jordan calling Isaiah Thomas an asshole takes one to no one. You remember some of the highlights from his Hall of Fame speech? You remember what he said about Jerry Krause? You don't? Oh, let me remind you. Roll it. You know, Jerry Krause is right there, and Jerry's not here. Obviously, I don't, you know, I don't know who inv invited him. I didn't, but uh, uh, I hope he understands. I hope he understands it, it goes a long way, and he was a very competitive person. I was a very competitive person. He said organization wins championships. I said, I didn't see organization playing with the flu in Utah. I didn't see him playing with, you know, with the bad ankle. Uh, granted, granted, I think organizations put together teams, but at the end of the day, the teams got to go out and play. You know, so in essence, I think the players win the championship and the organization has something to do with it. Don't get me wrong, but don't try to put the organization. Ladies and gentlemen, that is an asshole. I don't know who invited him. I didn't. Still debating the organizations win championship nonsense? Years later? I mean, my God, man, you won six NBA championships. You ain't winning six NBA championships without Jerry Krause. I, that must burn. That must hate. I understand all that stuff. But damn, man, you're still holding on to that grudge? You're still holding on to that? That's being an asshole. That is an insecure little asshole right there. Oh, but that just shows his competitive side. No, 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 no. That shows him being a narcissistic asshole. To actually bring that up on the time you were supposed to be celebrating your, your career, the highest achievement, being in the Hall of Fame, being part of one of the greatest Hall of Fame classes of all time, and you're going to take, you still haven't let the thing with Jerry Krause go? Again, I'm another guy. I hold on to grudges. I hold on to big grudges. I was, I was doing a long-term sub-job out here in Clark County when the principal told me that I, what did she say? She said some bullshit about, uh, you know, well, uh, she gave me some nonsense about, well, you know, the funding ran out and we can't have you anymore and this, that, and the other. And man, that hurt because it kind of put a crimp into my finances because I was making good money doing what I was doing. I was like, damn shit, damn, that's, that kind of hurts. 
Later on, I found out that, no, it had nothing to do with finances or anything like that. She just didn't like the way I was teaching or anything like that. So she didn't have the guts. She, she, was, a, she was such a fucking coward and a spineless piece of shit that she just went ahead and fired me and basically lied to my face. So, yes. What was that? Six, seven years later? Yeah. If I have a, if, if, yeah. So let me tell you something. If that principal right now, if she needed a nickel to save her life and I was walking around with a thousand dollars, I would walk right by her. Fuck you. You lie to me. You treat me like that. You put me in the position that I am in financially at the time where I didn't know what I was going to do. You did that to me. Fuck you. I don't give a fuck what happens to you. If there was any way that I could ruin her career, that old bag, and make sure that she spent the rest of her life doing nothing but struggling, I would have been first in line. So, yeah. <laughs> I Again, I, I, I sympathize. Again, I'm right there with Michael Jordan when it comes to holding a grudge. But I'm definitely not in my greatest moment here in Clark County. If I ever get to the greatest moment, I'm definitely not going to you know, bring it out on, on a speech and talk about, yeah, I mean, that one lady who fired me, fuck you, bitch. I mean, I'm not going to do that. So that's being an asshole. Oh, and by the way, in some regards, I'm an asshole too. You're an asshole. I'm an asshole. Wouldn't you be like to be an asshole too? We all are. We all have asshole qualities, tendencies. So Michael Jordan would be sitting up there high and talking about, Isaiah Thomas is an asshole, this, that, and the other. Again, the stuff that he said about Jerry Krause in his Hall of Fame speech. Michael Jordan, being an asshole. That's being an asshole. How about the wanting not to be his kids? Remember that? Remember that little ditty? Remember about charging, a th- complaining about, you know, the Hall of Fame charging $1,000 a ticket? But, you know, I had to pay for it. And a lot of people wanted to show. So thanks for raising the ticket prices. Ha, 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 ha. He wasn't joking. No, he wasn't joking. Listen. Uh, obviously, you, you see my kids, you know. Jeffrey, Marcus, Jasmine, I love you guys. I think uh, you guys represent a lot of me, you know, a lot of different personalities. Your mom, you represent them as well. You know, I, I think that you guys have a heavy burden. I, I wouldn't want to be you guys if I had to, you know, because of all the expectations that you have to deal with. I mean, look around you. you know, they charge you $1,000 tickets for this game, for this whole event. It used to be 200 bucks. But I paid it. You know, I, I had no choice. I had a lot of family, a lot of friends I had to bring in. So thank you, Hall of Fame, for, the, for raising ticket price, I guess. Does that sound ha-ha to you? <laughs> Does it sound like, oh, that MJ. Hey, yeah, that's such a humor. What a guy. <laughs> Boy, I tell you, did that sound, did one syllable from MJ coming out of his mouth, did that sound like he was joking around? I mean, he had the look on his face where it was kind of like, Half joking, half serious. We've all had the looks when we're half joking, half serious. Is like that joke is about the, the, the look that we have where we're joking is like, yeah, that's some bullshit. Let me tell you something. I'm on to your game, and that's some bullshit. And the furrow brow means that, yeah, I'm pissed. So Jordan, you could tell by his tone, you could tell by his facial expressions. Yeah, he was pissingly pissed off joking when he gave that uh, when he gave that little deal. And about his kids, jeez, man, really? You're going to do your kids like that? I mean, again, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> asshole, asshole. <laughs> I mean, almost Isaiah should take it as, a, like I said, it takes one to know one. Oh, 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 can we go on? You want me to go on? I know because you're squirming right now. I know I, I've heard 
I've heard it from my buddies. I've heard it from my Jordan friends. I heard it from the Jordan sheep. Oh, he, that's, that's one of the great things about Jordan, you know. He opened up to let people know what he is, know who he is. Isn't that great? Instead of going up there and putting on some type of act and putting on airs in terms of him being a humble guy and this, that, and the other, MJ came out and gave you, gave you full MJ. Wasn't that awesome? Wasn't that great? Okay, that might be great, but it kind of let the folks know that, yeah, I'm an asshole. Yeah, I'm a sort of kind of a bully and all those other things. Pat Riley, the story that he gave, he gave about Pat Riley, and then the little man, Jeff Gundy, again. Pat Riley is in the stands, and because he's Michael Jordan, what's Pat Riley going to do? Go up there and grab the microphone and challenge him to a fight? Well, go up there and talk about his deceased father? Well, go up there and talk about, uh, I don't know, I mean, you know, talk about his gambling addiction? I don't know, maybe go ahead and talk about his failed business as far as the Chicago restaurant that he had? I don't know, I mean, what? You, you just got to sit there and take it. Jordan knows that you got to sit there and take it. So he's going to plow in on you, Pat Riley. Pat Riley, I mean, you and I, we go way back. I still remember in Hawaii. You remember in Hawaii where you and I, I was coming in, you were, I guess, leaving, and you decided to stay a couple extra days, but you were in my suite, and they came and they told you you had to get out of my suite. <laughs> and you slid a note underneath my door, although you had to move, you did move. He slid a note saying, I enjoyed the competition, congratulations, but we will meet again. And I take the heart in that because I think in all honesty, you are just as competitive as I am, you know, even from a coaching standpoint. And you've challenged me every time I played the Knicks, the Heat, and I don't think you were with the Lakers, but anytime I played against you, you had, you had Jordan stoppers on your team, yeah, John Starks, who I love. You even had my friend Charles Oakley saying, we can't go to lunch, we can't go to dinner because Pat doesn't believe in fraternizing between the two of us. And this guy hit me harder than anybody else in the league, and he was my best friend. Patrick, you and we had the same major. We came out the same time, but we couldn't go to lunch. Why is this? You think I'm going to play against Patrick any different than I play against anybody else? No. No. And then you had your little guy who was on your staff who became the Knicks coach after you, Jeff Van Gundy. He said, I conned the players, I befriended them, and then I attacked them on the basketball court. Where did that come from? I just so happened to be a friendly guy. I get along with everybody, but at the same time, when the light comes on, I'm as competitive as anybody you know. Asshole. Asshole. I mean, first of all, he started off with, yeah, you know, uh, he was in my room, and, uh, you know, I, I came in, and, you know, of course, he had to leave. Like, yeah, we know, man, because you're just a, you're just a motherfucker, man. You're just a great, you're, you know, you got a big dick, and you're, you're wonderful. You're, a, you're an awesome human being. I know, I know. You're just the greatest. I understand that. So, I mean, it's. Asshole. And of course, then again, ha ha ha, and everyone's just laughing. Could you imagine, could you imagine you getting up on the stage and saying that type of shit? Could you imagine getting up in front of your peers, whatever job you're doing, whatever you're, wherever you're working, could you imagine getting up in front of people and saying some shit like that? I don't care how great of an employee you are. I don't, I don't care how great of a salesman you are. I don't 
I don't care how great of a telemarketer you are. I don't care how great you do your job. Could you imagine gathering a bunch of people around in a formal setting, going up and, and talking like that, and then expecting people to be like, oh, man, wasn't that great? Oh, he's awesome. Oh, <laughs> God, this is great. This is wonderful. Name me a scenario where you think you could get away with that. Probably you couldn't. But Michael Jordan, you can. Because when you're MJ and you have nobody telling you no, I mean, that's exactly what you can do. I mean, when, when, and again, what is Pat Riley going to do? What is Jeff Van Gundy going to do? What is yeah, John Starks going to do? I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, yeah, and I know people, well, yeah, well, you know, it's all true, it's all true, it's all true. Yeah, but really, so, you know, so you have to throw it in someone's face. Yeah, isn't that great? No, that's being an asshole. You know, humility all of a sudden is some type of weakness. Humility is not being, that's not being cool. You know, it's manly, it's being a real bad if you go ahead and you fucking kick somebody when they're down or, they, or you try to embarrass somebody. Like, oh, I don't know, calling out Leroy Smith. And then there's Leroy Smith. Now, you guys think that's a myth. Leroy Smith was a guy, when I got cut, he made the team on the varsity team. And he's here tonight. He's still the same 6'7 guy. He's not any bigger. He's, he's probably his game is about the same. But he started the whole process with me because when he made the team and I didn't, I wanted to prove not just to Leroy Smith, not just to myself, but to the coach who actually picked Leroy over me. I wanted to make sure you understood, you made a mistake, dude. Oh, cause he's an ass. Oh, he's assy, assy, letting the hole hang out. Cause he's an ass. Little hole. I mean, man, you know, of course the guy again. I mean, what did Leroy Smith gonna do? Well, you know, I mean, okay, as a 15 year old, I made the basketball team over you. You know, right? and of course again, the Jordan sheep. The Jordan losers who follow him and make excuses for him, you know. Oh, man, isn't that awesome, man? I mean, what a great story. You can go around and tell people that, you know, you beat out Michael Jordan, you know, on a basketball team. This, that, and the other. And he's kind of validating this story. So, you know, you give, he's actually giving you credibility. So, you know, you can you can walk into a club and go up to some bitch and behave like, hey, bitch, you know what I'm saying? My name is Leroy. Leroy Smith. Yeah. So, you know the reason why you should go home with me? Because back in the 10th grade, guess what I did, baby? I beat Michael Jordan out for the varsity basketball team. Shit. Take them clothes off, boy. I mean, girl, take them clothes off. I mean, you know, I mean, how do we know that Leroy Smith even with the last pick? How, how, do, how do we know that it came down between Leroy Smith and Michael Jordan? I mean, maybe Jordan and Leroy Smith and three other guys. You know, maybe on the 12-man team, Leroy was number 10 and Jordan was number 14. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised that he, he didn't hunt down maybe some other guys who made the team where he felt that he should have made the team over them and got them in the audience so he could sit there and humiliate them and embarrass them. A bully. It's interesting because, look, man, I mean, you know, Jordan's a great player. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, he's a great player. And a lot of this really... I guess you could say it's really not his fault because if you really think about it with Michael Jordan, I mean, when was the last time Michael Jordan was a regular human being? You know what I'm saying? When was the last time Michael Jordan was like me and you? 
When was the last time Michael Jordan could walk down the street and not be recognized? When was the last time Michael Jordan could go into a McDonald's and not be recognized? When was the last time Michael Jordan could be seen in public and not be recognized? When was the last time someone told Michael Jordan no? When was the last time Michael Jordan, someone told Michael Jordan, fuck you? When was the last time someone dissed on Michael Jordan who wasn't at the stature of maybe a Charles Barkley or something like that? Just an ordinary run-of-the-mill guy. When was the last time that happened? When Jordan was what, maybe 15? 16? 17? 18 maybe? Maybe first year in college? I'm quite sure he could walk around campus. But after he made that winning shot in the NCAA championship game when he was what, maybe 19? 20? I mean, what was the last time, especially when he got into the league at 21? What was the last time that Michael Jordan became was a, was a normal human being? And again, when was the last time there was anybody around to curtail some of this, the ego and the insecurity? And that's what it is with Jordan. I mean, him being an asshole just based on insecurity. All of us, I mean, you, me, all of us, well, we, have, we all have asshole qualities and tendencies and they come from insecurities. We all have, we're all insecure about something. I mean, right? I mean, I'm secure about insecure about a lot of things. I'm trying to work on them. Some I've gotten better at. Some I haven't made any progress. A couple I've gotten worse at. But, you know, I, I have the wherewithal to know that, you know, these are the things for me to become a better person I have to work on. Because my insecurities could get me, not get me in trouble, but my insecurities could hurt me with things. See, Jordan's insecurities doesn't matter because he's Michael Jordan. So Jordan can be a bully, and Jordan can be an asshole, and Jordan can be belittling, and Jordan can do all these things. And in the world that he lives in, he has the status, he has the money for people not to be like, hey, man, fuck you, man, get the fuck out of here. You know, I can't talk to my friends like Michael Jordan can talk to my friends. I wouldn't even want to talk to my friends like Michael Jordan talk to our friend, talk to his friends. I wouldn't treat my friends that way because hopefully the type of friends I would have, if I did treat them like that, hopefully they would say, hey, man, fuck you. You know, if this is the way you're going to treat me, go fuck yourself and never speak to me again. Hopefully, if I had friends like that. Now, of course, me, me and you and everybody else, we all have friends where we, you know, we we don't, we, 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 we laugh at and we, you know, we, we jone on each other and this, that, and the other. And that, but it's only good fun. But Jordan is like, he has no problem humiliating his friends in front of people or humiliating anybody in front of people, whether it be a Hall of Fame speech or whatever. Remember, I remember this nonsense. When Patrick Ewing number was retired by the Knicks, Michael Jordan showed up. Charles Barkley showed up. A couple of other folks showed up, the Van Gundys and stuff. They showed up, and it was about, you know, hey, get on the mic. Patrick Ewing, great competitor, great guy, you know. I mean, fought hard. He's a warrior, this, the other. I mean, you know, it was basically, you know, hey, people see Patrick Ewing as this frowning, scowling, mean angry guy, but you know, he's really not. He's a great guy. He does this. He does that. You know, he's warm. He's this, that, and the other. He works hard. He's a great basketball player. He's a great father. I mean, he's just a great guy, right? Which these guys should have been doing. Well, you know, what Barkley and those guys did when they were discussing Ewing getting his jersey number 33 retired from the Raptors, right? Well, here comes MJ. All right. Here comes MJ, right? And again, you would think, hey, you know what? Great battles. I mean, the Bulls and the Knicks, we went back and forth. It was a great battle. And, you know, I knew I had to bring my A game every time because Patrick was such a warrior and he was such a great player that I knew that, you know, anything less than, you know, my A game or whatever thing else, I knew that we were going to be in trouble. So, you know, Ewing brought out the competitor in me and 
you know, he was a great big man. And he's become a great friend, and you know, he's such a great guy, and this, that, and the other. And I like, couldn't be happier for him for this moment with his family and this moment with the banner being raised. Awesome, this, that, and the other, right? Now, you you think somebody semi-normal would do something like that, right? No, not MJ. Oh, this, it, it had to be all about him. Oh, yeah, there was that one time. and uh, Yeah, of course, we won. And, and even though he never beat me. And, oh, yeah, I was this and I was that. But, you know, he gave it a good try. And it's like, wow, man. And, of course, what did those guys have to do? It's like, you know, again, it's like that's. But that's, again, who, who was going to tell Jordan when he was 21, 24, 28 that, hey, man, you know. You're acting like a real bitch, man. You're acting like a real asshole. You know, you need to knock that shit off. You know, just, you know, you, you know, start acting like a real human being, you know, because that ain't the way to go. So it was just always, that, like I mentioned before, when I saw, that's the one thing I took away. Not so much about the Pistons walking off the floor and that's a big deal. That's not a big deal. That was nonsense to me. But the, the hatred or this, I don't, I don't know. I don't know why Jordan is carrying it. I mean, there was the situation where, I mean, with Jordan, it's almost like you, you don't even know what the final straw was or straw, straw is on why he hates somebody. You know, him and Charles Barkley aren't friends anymore. We don't know why. Charles Barkley doesn't even know why. I mean, there was a situation where he hates Isaiah Thomas. Well, we thought, or the, 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 the thought, the, the national thought or the con consensus thought, was he was upset because Isaiah was the ringleader to freeze him out of the All-Star game his second year or his rookie year or something like that. Because the veterans like George Gervin and Magic Johnson and Isaiah Thomas at the time, they didn't like this rookie coming into the uh, festivities on Saturday wearing his Jordan gear. You know, everybody else who competed in the dunk contest and such, you know, Terrence Stansbury and some others, they were all wearing their jerseys, right? They were all wearing the team's jerseys. Jordan came in there with his Jordan gear on. So I guess, like, Isaiah and those guys were like, what the fuck's up with this rookie? What's up the fuck? What the fuck's up with this young buck up here doing this type of shit? So maybe it was a situation to say, hey, man, you know, kind of like know your place. Kind of like, hey, this is not how we do things. You you might be great now or you might be the man in four or five years, but at the point in time of your NBA career, that you, were, you weren't at that stature yet to be pulling some shit off like that. You know, win a couple of championships, and then you can kind of do that shit. But as of right now, nah, fuck you. So I can understand. So Isaiah kind of was supposed to be, supposedly, the ringleader to say, hey, man, we got to freeze this guy out to let him know. Hey, you know, that, that bullshit did not fly and was not welcome uh, what you did on Saturday. So that's where I thought Jordan first had the beef, beef with Isaiah because I think a couple of nights later after the All-Star game, like Jordan went nuts and dropped 40 or 50 on the on the Pistons and was dunking on everybody. So basically he was making a statement saying, yeah, Isaiah, I know what you did and you're an asshole. So I don't know, man. I don't know. When Jordan gets angry at you, who knows, man? It could be for a myriad of things. Like I said, I thought that he was upset and never forgave him for freezing him out. But I guess he's an asshole because of what he did with the walking off the floor. Maybe it was a combination of two. I don't know. I don't know. So, so here again, Thomas is talking about, you know, recently saying that, in an interview that Jordan is the fourth best player he's ever faced. He said that when you put Jordan and his basketball team in the eighties, they weren't a very successful team. They were just, they, they just weren't. When you talk about Jordan and his team dominating, they dominated in the nineties. But when you put him with those Lakers team and those Pistons teams and those Celtics teams, 
They all beat him. They just did. What separated Jordan from all of us was he was the first one to three. He was the first one to three-peat, but he didn't have to three-peat against Magic, Larry, and Dr. J. Well, three-peat against Dr. J only went to the finals. Dr. J went to the finals, what, two times in the 80s? No, he went to the finals in 79-80 where he lost to Magic. Then he went to the finals in 81-82, and then he won the championship in 82-83. So I, I don't I don't know about Dr. J dominating the uh, 80s. That's okay. Well, I mean, that, going through Dr. J, if you were talking about going through Dr. J of the ABA days, or maybe going through the Dr. J that played on the 76-77 Philadelphia 76er squad with World Beat Free and George McGinnis and Dawkins and Doug Collins. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe you might have some validity there, but I mean, you know, the Dr. J reference, eh, I don't know. I don't know about that one. Yeah, he won, like I said, they won a championship in 82 and 83. But maybe he should have said Moses Malone instead of Dr. J if he wanted to name a name out there because Moses was the man for that squad that won the championship. But, you know, I mean, Magic, Larry, yeah, you're right. You know, he, well, he went through Magic, but he did have to three-peat against, well, guess what? You didn't either, Isaiah. I mean, you know, you only beat Boston once in terms of when they were in their prime. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't know, man. You know, it doesn't matter. I mean, Isaiah spent the first half of the 80s Losing to Bernard King and the New York Knicks and losing to the Atlanta Hawks. And, you know, so it's like, all right, man. I, yeah, all right. I, like I said, you know, it's like school school ground, playground bullshit, you know, where so it's like, look, they don't like each other. That's fine. Jordan has got his life. Isaiah has got his life. Both seem to be happy. Both seem to be moving on. So, you know, my whole situation with that is whatever. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us, speaking about what's going down, what's on my mind in the world of sports and beyond. So there's another elite high school basketball prospect that's not going to be going to a college to play ball. Five-star prospect, point guard prospect, Dacian Nix, decommitted from UCLA. He will join the G League. Now, Nix had committed to UCLA this past uh, August. He is the number 15 player, the number one point guard in the 2020 recruiting class per 24-7 sports composite rankings. Nick's contract is expected to be in the $300,000 range. Hmm. And that would be slightly lower, of course, 
than the five hundred thousand dollar deal that that uh, this guy Green received. This is according to uh, ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski and Jonathan Giovanni. And so now we've got players from the 2020 class who come from the G League. Let me see. We've got Isaiah Todd from Richmond, Virginia, who Georgetown was interested in when he was a sophomore. But you know, he he um, he was supposed to go to Michigan, play for Jawan Howard, but he said no thanks, decommitted, and went to the G League. Knicks and Jalen Green. So we've got three players so far. And Todd can earn up to $250,000 from his G League salary. This is according to uh, Giovanni. So according to Wojnowski and Giovanni, Knicks, Green, and Todd, they won't play a full G League season next uh, next season. Even if everything works out with the coronavirus deal, they're still not going to be playing a full G League uh, season. They'll compete against G League teams as well as international teams and NBA Academy squads. And the players will also receive guidance from personal, personal, uh, professional coaches and older players with NBA experience. Eh, not bad, I guess. I mean, you know, you're gonna be making five hundred grand. I mean, you know, I don't know. I, you know, my dream. Look, I mean, my dream when I was young was to be the next Magic Johnson. It really was. So, from a little bit, e little bitty boy, I had a dream. I had a dream. It was to go and play for John Thompson Jr. at Georgetown University or Lucky Drizelle at Maryland. Eventually, it swung over to um, Georgetown and uh, John Thompson. That was my dream. So I wanted to play for John Thompson in Georgetown, play four years, and then play for uh, the Los Angeles Lakers and live in L.A. and live the life that Magic Johnson lived. Now, this was before the Internet and everything like that, but it just seemed like when they would do the NBA specials or when they would take a look at the guys' lives or when you would read the sporting news, about, you know, the way Magic Johnson lived in terms of not the women that he was banging. That came a little bit later. But just the way that he was living, the fact, you know, me, me Cliff Glover, and my brother, Mikhail Davis, I mean, we were Isaiah, Magic, and Mark Aguirre because we would read about, you know, how those three would hang out during the summers and they would they'd go to New York City and they would travel the world and they would play. But Magic and Isaiah and those guys and Aguirre and those guys, those guys would play in the summer at the Cap Center. But they would have these exhibitions, right? So a couple of times, my dad, God rest his soul, took us to go see some of those games. And they were all exhibitions. I mean, one of those deals where the final score was like 214 to 207. I mean, no one was playing defense. But, you know, you would have Isaiah Thomas doing his thing. And you would have Magic Johnson doing his thing. It was like an all-star game with even less defense and more, more showtime. I mean, it was just a much better version of the N1 uh, mixtapes, you know, what that you saw with hot sauce and the white professor and all these type of deals. Magic and those guys were barnstorming. I don't know what they were doing it for, but they were barnstorming during the summer and they would play in these um they would play in these pickup games. So, you know, we just we just loved that kind of stuff, man. We just ate that stuff up. One of the main reasons why I wanted to become a basketball player, like I said, because you know, you saw a picture of Magic Johnson's house and it had the DJ and it had a it had a dance club in there and all that kind of stuff and you know, had a basketball court, you know, and had, you know, at the time, a 15, 16-year-old, you know, Wendell Wallace was just like, damn, this is the, this is the shit for me. This is, I want to be like that, man. I want to be in L.A. Because I used to, during the summers, go up to um, visit my relatives up in Northern California, up in the Bay Area. But for me, it was like, man, I thought L.A. was just magical because of watching the Los Angeles Lakers play 
and reading about Magic Johnson to see specials about Magic Johnson, how he was living his life in his house and everything like that. I was like in the warm sun of L.A. and this, that, and the other, and Hollywood and all this kind of stuff, and Ola Ray and all these other beauties and all this kind of stuff. I was like, man, that's where, you know, as a young kid, that's where I wanted to go. So I had my thing laid out. So at the time, when I was growing up and being influenced and all that type of stuff growing and going to a G League or going to the CBA or bypassing college altogether was unheard of because the second greatest thing that you could have done besides going to the NBA, which was your ultimate goal, right behind that goal of going to the NBA, finishing in a close second, you could even say 1A, was playing college basketball, was playing for a Dean Smith, was playing for a Lefty Giselle, was playing for a Terry Holland, was playing for a John Thompson, was playing for a Raleigh Massimino, was playing for a Lou Carnesecca, was playing for those guys, but playing for a John Chaney. That was the second thing, going to the NCAA tournament. I mean, that was the end all the be-all when we were growing up. So this nonsense at the time, I would think, in my 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old brain would be like, why in the world do I want to go to a G League when I can go play at Georgetown, when I can go play at Duke? You got to remember, I'm so, I'm so old that Duke wasn't Duke when I was like, filling my head full of like fantasy of playing college basketball. Krzyzewski was, was, was a nobody. We never heard of the guy. It wasn't until he got Johnny Dawkins and Mark Allery and Jay Billis and um, Tommy Amaker. Tommy Amaker and Jay Billis being from the D.C. area. That's when he started winning. That's when Coach K started formulating who, quote, Coach K was. But before that, when you had Gene Bangs and Jim Spinarkle and those guys, I mean, we didn't know. You know, Mike Jeminski. We didn't know anything about that. For us, it was, you know, for me, it was all about Maryland. It was all about Adrian Branch. It was all about Ben Coleman. It was all about uh, Kenny Gatling. It was all about, uh, um, oh my goodness, uh, Herman Veal. It was all about those guys, man. Mark Massenburg, you know, the, the white boy, number 10 who could shoot. I mean, for me, those were those were my heroes along with Magic and the, and the Lakers. You know, those were, those were my boys. You know, Gene Smith and Michael Graham and... Patrick Ewing and Ralph Dalton and Horace Broadnax and Perry McDonald and David Wingate and Reggie Williams. I mean, those, you know, I mean, shit. If I had the honor, the dream of playing on the same court, being coached by the same man as those guys, shit. Man, that, was, that was the end all the be all. So for me, now to be taking a look, how have times changed, huh? I mean, now you're taking a look. The NCAA is now seriously worried about, well, now we've got guys who have absolutely no interest at all of playing in college. The thought of playing for a Calipari or a, a Bill Self or a Krzyzewski or, a, you know, a, 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 not Lute Olson, but a, a Sean Miller, you know, things are like big fucking deal, you know? So it's interesting. It's interesting to see, again, the tide of folks. And I mentioned this before on a podcast. I did a couple of podcasts ago about you know, the great thing about college basketball is the fact that it doesn't rely because it's four years. And now if you really think about it for the past 20, 30 years, maybe there was a little dip in the 80s when guys like Patrick Ewing and Ed Pinckney and these great college basketball players stayed four years. But, you know, for the most part, you speak about guys like Isaiah Thomas and Mark McGuire and Magic Johnson and Larry Bird and uh, all these other great basketball players, Akeem Olajuwon. You know, the, the last really great player who could have gone and been drafted number one or number two or, no, or number three in the NBA before his senior year, 
but decided to come back was Tim Duncan. And that was in the, when he played for Wake Forest, that was back in, what, 97, somewhere around there. Grant Hill was another one who, after his junior year, sophomore year, could have came out and made some, made some bank by being a high draft pick, but he decided also to stay four years at Duke. So for the most part, that's 97, 2007, 2017. So you're speaking almost 24 years, 23 years in terms of a, a guy who was going to be a high draft choice who decided to come back. Now you had this bullshit about, you know, remember when North Carolina won their championship and they had Tyler Hansborough and Wayne Ellington and Ty Lawson and those guys. And it was like, oh boy, those guys are so awesome. Those guys are so fantastic. Those guys are such wonderful people because they could have gone to the NBA after their junior year, but they dedicated themselves and they promised themselves that they were going to win a championship and they came back and won a championship. They built, uh, they beat uh, Illinois. Uh, Bill Bill uh, Bill Weber was the coach, who's now coaching at Kansas State. They had a what did Illinois had on that team. They had Darren Williams and a couple of other guys who were pretty good. D. Brown, I think, or something like that. But um, yeah, oh my goodness, it was so wonderful. I mean, that was a whole spiel during that tournament about oh my goodness, isn't this so wonderful that the Carolina guys gave up the opportunity to go early to the pros and now they're going to come back? Bullshit, man. Let me tell you something about that because of course you know they concentrated on. Tyler Hansborough the most, right? You know, obvious reasons. So, you know, oh, Tyler Hansborough, he's so great. He's so wonderful. Had his jersey retired even before he finished playing college basketball. I think they retired, retired his jersey on senior night or some shit like that. Let me tell you something, man. The reason why Tyler Hansborough and Wayne Ellington and Ty Lawson, you know why they came back to play their senior year at North Carolina? Had nothing to do with the loyalty to good old Roy. Had nothing to do with them trying to win a championship. It had everything to do with they weren't going to be drafted high enough. Tyler Hansborough, Wayne Ellington, and Ty Lawson going into the junior year or after their junior year, if they would have gone in the NBA draft, those guys wouldn't have been, at least two of the three wouldn't have been first-round draft choices. So that's bullshit. So they came back to school, number one, to improve their draft status. Now, it made it easier for them to come back because maybe they were trying to quench that thirst to win a championship and they enjoyed college and they enjoyed playing with each other. I mean, of course that had something to do with it, but I'm going to bet my bet my uh, golly wow that the number one reason why they came back was because they weren't going to be lottery picks. If Ty, if Ty Lawson and Tyler Hansborough and Wayne Ellington were going to be lottery picks or top 10 picks, no, those guys would not have been coming back because number one, Roy Williams would not have let them come back because Roy Williams... As a coach, it's his responsibility to say, "Hey, look, man, you gotta go." Sorry, I mean, you know, I'm I'm glad that you know, you know, I mean, Miles Bridges for Michigan State, yeah, he came back when he could have been a high draft pick for uh, Tom Izzo, but still, for the most part, it's the coach's responsibility. If someone's gonna be drafted that high, it's like, no, nah, man, I can't have you come back. I cannot have you come back. This is the highest that you're gonna be drafted. If two, three, four, eight, ten, you gotta go. You gotta go because hell, what could happen? You could break a leg. You could. You could, who knows what could happen, you know? You could be exposed, maybe. Or you could have a down year, which could cause your draft stock to slip. Who knows, man, what's going to be happening to you? Unless someone is so fucking immature to where it's like, look, if you draft this kid now and you give him six or seven figures, I'm telling you right now, within two years, he's going to be out of the league. Because either he's going to be fat and out of shape, he's going to have six women, he's going to have six kids by four different women, he's going to have so many narcotics and blow and all this other stuff up his nose that he's not going to be able to do anything. He's going to have so much poison in his veins that he's not going to do anything. He's not going to take it seriously because of the immaturity that he has. Maybe that might be the only reason, the only reason why a coach 
would advise a player that, you know what, I know that you're going to be drafted high, but you ain't ready. Physically, maybe mentally, no. But no, as a coach, if you're going to be drafting, if your player is a lottery pick or a high first-round draft pick, you got to send them, period, end of discussion. And we're not having this discussion about maybe, maybe, you know, you, you got you got to go. You got to go. So it's my duty as a coach to say you got to go. Time to leave the time to leave the, the nest, young sparrow. So, yeah, so all of that just goes back to this whole notion about what is the NCAA, what is the NCAA going to do with this situation, man? I mean, you know, they can't. They can't compete with the money that's going to be made. You know, I, I, I get the NCAA's reason. They're saying, look, we're not going to have these guys, we're not going to have these players be paid employees. You know, 401ks and, you know, health care benefits and all that kind of nonsense. We, we can't treat these student athletes. I mean, I know it's a bogus term, and I know there's a lot of, like, you know, leeway and eye-rolling when it comes to student athletes, but they are still student-athletes, so they can't be full-time employees, even though, you know, they are responsible for many, many incomes. We're talking about admissions directors, we're talking about athletic directors, we're talking about college coaches, we're talking about assistant coaches, we're talking about grad assistants, we're talking about a lot of people who are on, who are, who are employees, where these kids who are coming to schools, basically, supposedly, on a you know, on a scholarship, you know, they hold a lot of responsibility in their hands. So you still can't have them uh, become paid employees. But, you know, the fact that, hey, let's go ahead and get these guys with their likeness and see what they can do to, again, it was the old deal about, you know, supporting, and then the NCAA governing body was going to be talking about this a couple of days ago, supporting the proposal to allow college athletes to sign endorsement contracts, receive payments for other work, provided that the school they attend are not involved in any of the payments. So basically, they don't want the university acting as their agent, as their pimp, as their agent. So what's allowed and what's not allowed, when we talk about this new day to see what the NCAA can do to maybe stem the momentum of top elite players going to the G League, bypassing college altogether, what is the NCAA trying to do? They're trying to put in these rules, again, as I mentioned before, seeing that the athletes can sign endorsement contracts, so what is allowed that the NCAA is going to be talking about this past week? Possible possibility for athletes to monetize their social media networks, profit from writing a book or making a music album, host a sports camp, and start a business, among other potential opportunities. I mean, there could be situations. I know my boy Matt McClung is having a film crew follow him around uh, during the summer or during the spring or whatever. And they're going to be able to put that out. I mean, you have guys like Zion Williamson who had a million followers when he was in high school. You had Matt McClung who had a lot of followers when he was in high school. I mean, you have someone like a Cade Cunningham who's going to uh, Oklahoma State University. You have uh, all these top-tier guys who you can go on the Internet. I mean, I, if you, I, could, I can ball his life mixtapes. You know, I can take the top 100 players from ESPN's high school basketball uh, recruiting uh, rankings, you know? I can go from the number one player all the way down to the number 100 player. I can put his name on YouTube, and I can get some type of highlights, multiple highlights, sometimes hours of highlights um, of these guys doing stuff. There should be a way for these guys to somehow monetize that, or there should be a way for these guys to 
be able to get themselves a full a film crew like in high school and to film and put together a mixtape to where they can go ahead and put it on their own personal page and be able to get paid for that. So it's ideas like that, what the NCAA is talking about. Athletes would also be allowed to mention their status as a college athlete and the school they attend in advertising. So, I'm sorry, that's not, that's, that's, not, that's not what allowed. What is allowed, as I mentioned before, is the, is the um, uh, signing endorsements and everything like that. So what is not allowed is schools that are, as I mentioned before, you can't act as pimps. You can't go out there and be like, yeah, you know what, though, let's see what we can make some deals. Like, I don't know how that would work. Like, if the university, for instance, made a deal, like, for instance, Nike, Under Armour, all of these guys, right, they're signed with these with these athletic programs, right? So isn't it a matter of, hey, you know what, let's just, just keep it real. Let's just say that, you know, Georgetown um, comes in there. They're a Nike school, so why couldn't Matt McClung be on a Nike commercial with his Georgetown gear on? Or, or, or a logo or something like that. I don't know. I don't know. So, as I mentioned before, athletes would also be allowed to mention the, their status as college athletes in the school they are attending in advertising. So, what's not allowed is schools to pay athletes directly or to provide any assistance to athletes in setting up endorsements, again, acting as their agents or representation. And athletes would not be allowed to use any school-branded marks in advertisements or wear clothing with school logos. And the NCAA would also consider regulations that prohibit athletes from promoting products that don't line up with the NCAA values, such as gambling websites or banned substances. I wonder if it would be for alcohol, because, you know, I'm quite sure that, you know, what's the drinking limit for, uh, is the drinking limit 18 or 21? Man, don't look at me like that. I don't have any 18 or 21-year-old kids. I don't hang around 18 or 21-year-olds. I'm far from being 18 or 21, so I don't know what 18 and 21-year-olds can do. I know they can vote. I know they can go to clubs. I know they can do some other things. They can go to war. But I don't know. Can they drink when you're 18 or 21? I don't know. I don't know. So basically, but you know, um, you know it would be kind of awkward, I think, to be in the middle of light, com- middle of light commercial and you have Kate Cunningham, <laughs> a freshman up there talking about, yeah, it tastes great. Let's fill it. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know about that. So... That would be interesting. So also, individual schools would also be allowed to make a list of products that don't match their values and say athletes are not allowed to endorse them. So I'm quite sure, what, at Liberty University? What type of shit that Jerry Falwell, that that fucking con man, that snake oil salesman, I wonder what uh, bullshit he can be like. No, you can't do that. I, uh, I prayed to the Lord last night, and I thought this through... And the Lord told me that uh, our basketball players cannot endorse such products as. So I don't. I don't know how that goes. I don't know how that goes. Now the comments. So basically, it's like, look, I'm all for the free marketplace, man. If so, someone's going to pay you some money, pay them some money. Like really, you're not going to be able to wear a logo or represent the school, really. Like someone in Kentucky, a basketball player in Kentucky, is going to be doing a local spot. And those people aren't going to know what team he plays for or what university he goes for. So you're in the same thing with Indiana. So if someone in Alabama, a football player, is going to be, you know, talking about, hey, come on now for the ribs down here at Sugar Shacks or some shit like that. And he doesn't wear an, uh, any gear from the university that people are going to be like, yeah, oh, I wonder what school he played for. Come on now. Let these guys do their thing. And why not? If you're the NCAA or if you're these schools who ultimately, I think, hold all the power, especially this power five schools, why not? I mean, hell, when you watch these 
football and basketball or baseball contest or softball contest, anything where colleges are playing on television, whether it be CBS, NBC, ESPN, ESPN2, ESPN Classic, they still have it. All these other sports stations, when you're watching these games, what's at halftime or a couple of times during the, uh, during the uh, telecast? They always give that little 30-second promo about how great their school is. So why not? Why not have a situation where, you know what? Well, you know, it might be a situation where uh, the school with the haves could have an advantage over the schools with the have-nots. The schools with the haves already have an advantage over schools with the have-nots. Guess what? Schools in the SEC that play football, yeah, they have more advantages than schools in the MEAC or schools in the other mid-tier conferences. Schools that in the ACC for basketball, yeah, they have more advantages than schools in the Mountain West or the Big West Conference or the MEAC. Sorry, that's just the way it goes. So I, I, I don't understand that. I like the fact of what Jay Billis said concerning this issue. One hand, you want to give the NCAA credit that it's taking another step toward giving athletes the same economic rights as literally everyone else, including every other student. But then you listen to Mark Emmert, who has changed his tune really at every um, every turn in this, from when he first got the job to athletes will never be compensated on my watch, to saying, you know, in the O'Bannon case, under oath, uh, that athletes should never be shills for a product and its exploitation, to now saying that they've been trying all along to, to help athletes and they're just, you know, they're getting tripped up by litigation. You know, the NCAA is still going to Congress and asking Congress to bail it out. Uh, all it needs to do is just say that athletes can earn or accept whatever they like in the marketplace, just like any other student can, and they don't have to worry about any state laws. Uh, it's just simple free market economics, and it's really, really simple. Uh, but they're trying to put up all these guardrails and all these other restrictions, uh, and, and I don't think it's going to work. The only thing that's going to work is allowing athletes the same economic rights as everybody else. Absolutely. Absolutely. The NCAA still being coy, cunning, non-forthcoming about what they want to do. They're putting up these guardrails. They're putting up, yeah, you can do this, but. Yeah, you can do that, but. Yeah, you can do these, but. So many big buts, I cannot lie. Man, I don't know why. But it's like, come on, man, give me a break. No, allow athletes, as Jay Bill said very eloquently and very well, allow athletes the same rights as everybody else, the same rights as every other student. And this nonsense about, you know what, man, you could give in the marketplace or like, you know, you could give some conference. Remember when the NCAA was trying to prevent this about a year ago when California and some other states put in this, you know, you can go ahead and you can, um, you know, make money off your name and likeness. And the NCAA was talking about the Congress, like they got to stop this because my goodness, this could give, you know, schools and different places that could give them, you know, unlimited resources to be, more competitive, and it would be uh, uh, it could tilt the competitive edge so far that it would just be ridiculous. And oh my goodness gracious, it's like bullshit. Let me tell you something, man. You take a look at the top media markets. You take a look at someone like a New York City or a Chicago, Illinois, or a Los Angeles, California. You know the the, the big markets, the Boston, Massachusetts. You know the big markets of this country. That's as far as college athletes are concerned, making bank. That's where they're not going to be. College athletes are not going to get that type of opportunity in those type of markets. A college athlete ain't going to get, aren't going to be making the big bucks as far as advertising is concerned if they're in New York. I mean, for what? NYU, for St. John's? For in, in uh, Chicago? What, DePaul? 
Illinois is in Champaign. The University of Illinois is in Champaign. I mean, what else? Illinois State? I mean, what, what we're talking about? What, UCLA, USC? In the LA market? They ain't going to be making bank. You know who's going to be making the most bank? If, if you're a college athlete and you want to try to make the most bank, and say you're a football player, you want to make the most bank by your likeness and everything else, you don't go play football in the major cities. If you want to make bank, you go down to Tuscaloosa, Alabama. You go down to Gainesville, Florida. You go down to Tallahassee, Florida. You go over to Columbus, Ohio. You go over to Clemson, South Carolina. That's one of the places you go. You go to Auburn, Alabama. If you're a basketball player, you go to Bloomington, uh, Indianapolis. You go to um, Lexington, Kentucky. That's where you go. You go to Wichita, Kansas. You go to Omaha, Nebraska. Those are the places that you go. If you go to UCLA, would you think you're going to get more endorsement deals and opportunities than, say, someone on the Lakers? You're going to get more opportunities if you're a football player playing at USC or UCLA more than the Rams or well, Chargers are a bad example, but than the Rams? No, no. What type of money if you're a college athlete in the metro New York area, where are you going to be making your money compared to what you could do if you're going to be playing, some, playing in some place like Oxford, Mississippi or Austin, Texas or Norman, Oklahoma? Come on, man. Easy. So, this nonsense about, oh, man, you know, we have to put these guardrails and we have to put these restrictions on, on folks. It's all bullshit, man. It's all nonsense. Let the people go ahead and do what they need to do. Also, what's interesting is that the agent factor, the agent factor in terms of, you know what, a player coming in to play a sport could also have an agent. Well, isn't that something? The first thing I thought about was, okay. So now if it's all right for these agents to have, or these, these, these players to have representation to help these guys when they go into college or to help kind of, you know, kind of decrease the opportunities or decrease the thought patterns of kids bypassing college to go to the, um, the G League. Well, then, man, can you imagine now you're going to have agents? You think it's bad now in terms of, you know, agents, you know, hanging around these AAU tournaments and hanging around the dorms and hanging around the schools. Could you imagine now with now it's almost going to be ramped up even more because now there is no underhandedness. There is no shadiness. There is nobody talking about, hey, what's that agent doing over there? Someone called the NCAA. There is no now. If it's going to be permissible for agents to go ahead and talk to these players, bam, it's going to be open season. I can almost see agents now starting to make headways and maybe starting to build relationships with the parents of players who are 12, 13 years old. I can see these agents now trying to identify who's going to be the next big superstar when these guys are going to, when these kids are going to be in seventh and eighth grade. And I can see these kids now. I've mentioned before, Imani Bates. I mean, the kid's 15 years old. He's going to be a junior, I think. And this kid's already regarded as the possible successor to the throne of LeBron James in about seven or eight years. If you're an agent, aren't you trying to get in good with the family and with his father and with him now? I mean, you might as well start building these relationships now. So it's going to be like open season. And now you're going to have start representation. Now it's going to be like when these college coaches, football, basketball, wrestling, track and field, whatever, when these guys come in and they start pitching these athletes about the school and everything, 
it's going to be pitching it to the parents, pitching it to the guardians, pitching it to the uncles or aunts or whoever is in charge. But also, if the guy is going to be highly recruited or highly, you know, highly thought, highly thought after, sought after, he's also going to have to be pitching the school and everything to the agent. And then what is the agent going to be doing? I mean, we already know the underhandedness and shadiness that goes on in college athletics now. Now you're talking about someone like an agent who's going to be like, well, okay. I mean, all that sounds good and everything, but, you know, Jalen Green didn't make 500 grand from the G League. And I'm hearing some things about, you know, there's a possibility that uh, my guy is so good that, you know, they're looking at him that maybe he could get 750. Maybe he can get 500 grand to go to the G League. What are you going to do for this kid? Yeah, the room and board is nice. Yeah, playing on television in the NCAA is nice. Yeah, I can maybe see some potential endorsement deals. You know, y'all got a pretty vibrant, robust, you know, places down there where possibly my guy can go ahead and do some stuff where he can make some money. But $500,000 in the G League, what are you going to do? The scholarship and the promise of getting it on a couple of commercials, that ain't going to cut it. So what can you do for us? What can you do for him? What can you do for the family members? Talk to me. Talk to me, Coach K. Talk to me, John Calipari. Talk to me, Sean Miller. Talk to me, Will Wade. What are we going to do business here? Don't worry about it now. You don't have to worry about, like, you know, the NCAA recording you and all that kind of stuff. And plus, the folks in Louisiana at LSU, their backers are so fucking stupid and blind. Even if you are cheating, they don't care as long as you keep winning. So what are we going to do to keep you employed? What are we going to do to have you keep making millions of dollars? What are we going to have you do to raise your profile as a college coach? What are we going to do to have you in the good graces of the fan base? What are we going to do to have you to be a member of that country club? What are we going to do to have you be still the guest on, the, on your own TV and radio show? What are we going to do? Because what you're offering my client... And his family members just ain't cutting it. Man, that's going to be the new age what we're talking about if they let these agents start doing some things, you know? So it's going to be interesting, man, moving forward. It is going to be interesting. One of the things I also wanted to mention, maybe I should have mentioned it before on my last podcast, but I didn't get an opportunity or I just forgot. You know, people are always talking about, you know, bypass college, go to the NBA, you know, try to get out of there as soon as possible. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, well, college is a waste of time, this, that, and the other. You know, if you don't want to go to college, you don't want to go to college. First of all, when someone is 17 and 18 years old, you know, do they really think they have that mindset? Or do you really think they're in that position mentally be talking about whether they want to go to college or not? Now, look, if you're LeBron James, if you're someone like that who's going to be the number one pick, you're going to be making millions of dollars. You've got a family structure around you that's going to emphasize education and not go buck wild with the money and not go buck wild with the lifestyle. Okay, I get it. Maybe there is some, there's a stronger argument for you not to go ahead and go to college. Look, LeBron James is a billionaire. He didn't go to college. Kobe Bryant is was a absolute a renaissance man who didn't go to college. Jermaine O'Neal who played a long time in the NBA. He's a very smart guy who didn't go to college. I mean, going to college doesn't doesn't uh, measure your your smartness level. You know, it doesn't equate how smart you are. I mean, just because you go to college for four years and get a degree doesn't mean that you're smarter than the guy who didn't go to college at all. So that, that nonsense is just a myth. But I've always said this, though. For those who are like, ah, college is no big deal, no big deal. Just think about those, for instance, who are thinking about maybe going to the G League. 
who don't pan out, who all of a sudden realize that, you know what, I'm not going to be a lottery pick my freshman year. It happens all the time. Top 10, top 15, top 20 players in high school basketball, the top 20 players, not all of those guys are going to be one and dones. Kay Cunningham is, Evan Mobley is, I mean, maybe Scotty Lewis is, but there's a lot more guys who are going to need at least two to three more years of playing basketball, of playing basketball in college before they realize their dream of playing in the NBA. So just because you're a five-star recruit, just because you're a top five talent, that doesn't automatically mean that you only need one year of college before you go to the NBA. So it's a situation where, again, yeah, when you're 17, 18 years old, you're a high school senior, you're playing at the IMG Academy, or you're playing at Monte Verde, or you're playing at Flint Hill, or you're playing at one of these basketball programs, or you're playing at Finley, uh, uh, Finley Prep, and Finley Prep out here in Vegas is no longer around, but when Finley, Finley Prep was doing their thing, and they had all these high-profile, highly-recruited basketball players, they had Manute Bowles' son and a couple of others out there who were basically just basic one-and-done basketball players, who turned out to be, oops, they need a little bit more seasoning than just one and done. One of these guys, what, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that when you have folks, and if it's your family members, shame on them, but when you have folks talking about one and done, one and done NBA, one and done, one and done NBA, it's like, how can you leave it up to that child? How can you leave it up to that person who's just been gassed his whole life by everybody talking about one and done, one and done, one and done. You're ready for the NBA at 18. You're ready for the NBA at 18. You're a five-star recruit. You're being recruited by all everybody in the world, and you're on this AAU team, and you've got this mixtape, and you've got these followers, and you're dominating, and you've averaged all these points. When all of that is coming down on you, when that's the life that you've been living, and those are the words that you've been hearing for three, four, five, six years, are you really in an appropriate position to see if you need to go to school or not? Are you really in the right frame of mind? Are you mature enough to make that decision on whether you need to go to college or not? I don't think so. I really don't think so. It might be your dream. It might be everything else. That's, okay. That's fine. That's fine. That dream is still going to be around in a couple of years. No worry about it. Tim Duncan has made umpteen millions of dollars. He played in the NBA, what, 15, 16, 17 years. He's got no worries, and he's got a degree. Michael Jordan, the greatest basketball player by many people's assertion, whoever lived, he played three years in college. If Michael Jordan can play three years in college, what makes you think that you don't have to go to college at all? So it's just, and you also have to remember, let's just say, for instance, that you don't pan out. Let's just say, for instance, that, oops, I'm sorry, you know what? When I was a five-star recruit in high school, I was a shit, but I found out that, you know what? Eh, after three, four years, I'm really not... I'm really not all that. College kind of woke me up to the fact that I really wasn't as good as I thought I was. So here I am, my junior or my senior year in, high, uh, in college. I don't know if I'm going to be drafted number one. I don't know what my prospects are for being in the NBA. I, I could go to Europe. I could go to Australia. I could play basketball overseas. Fine. But my dream of being a lottery pick when I'm 19 years old and starting my Hall of Fame NBA career, that's... That's not happening. So here's where college comes in that's fantastic. Wow, you know what? I actually really do need something to fall back on. 
because I'm not going to be making generational money by the time I'm 28 years old, or I'm not going to have generational wealth by the time I'm 26 or 27 or 32. I'm actually going to have to, I don't know, work for a living once my basketball career is over. This, again, is where college comes in, because guess what? If you're a basketball player for the University of Kentucky, for the University of Indiana, for the University of Duke, for the University of North Carolina, for the University of UCLA, all of a sudden now you've got options. Why? Because if you graduate and you get that piece of paper, or even if you don't graduate and you go out in the workplace, and let's just say, for instance, you wanted to live your life in Lexington, Kentucky, or say, for instance, you want to live your life in Louisville, Kentucky, or say, for instance, that you want to live your life in Atlanta, Georgia. Or say, for instance, that you want to live your life in Charlotte, North Carolina. Or say, for instance, that you want to live your life in Seattle, Washington. All of a sudden now, you've got that cachet, baby, to walk in there and be talking about, yeah, I want a job, I want to be an account exec, or I want to, you know, start and work my way up and do my things in my wanting career. Oh, and by the way, yeah, my resume, yeah, my, my reference, my reference is John Calipari. My reference is Mike Krzyzewski. My reference is Bill Self. My reference is uh, Roy Williams. Bingo! And you're talking about putting that as a reference in Chapel Hill, North Carolina? You're talking about putting a reference like that if you're trying to get a job in Lexington, Kentucky? You're talking about putting a reference like that if you're trying to get a job in Kansas City, Kansas, Missouri, or Lawrence, Kansas? Bingo! Bam! Slam! Jajaga jam! That's even more potent if you're talking about a football player. Maybe, for instance, knee injury. You're talking about a situation where you could walk into a place and say, oh, yeah, graduate from uh, University of Notre Dame. Oh, yeah, and the state of Alabama. Oh, yeah, played for Nick Saban. Oh, yeah, you might have remembered me. Played in a couple of championships. Got Nick Saban's uh, resume right here. Made my letter of recommendation from Nick Saban. Hello, so when do I start? And, <laughs> man, in life, as you know, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And I... I don't care, man. You could you could get a business degree or a communications degree and graduate from the University of Alabama with a 5.0 GPA. That's how smart you are. You're so damn smart that the 4.0 wasn't even good enough. You got a 5.0. You could graduate number one in the class. I bet you, I bet you that that person does not stand a chance. You could be talking about, oh, I interned here and I interned there and I interned everywhere and blah, blah, blah. That don't mean shit in Tuscaloosa. That don't mean shit in Mobile or Montgomery. If a guy can come in to an interview, oh, yeah, didn't you see? Yeah, 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 I saw you. Yeah, man. Oh, tell me a little bit about that uh, championship game against Georgia, man. That was wild. That was crazy, man. So what's Tua like, man? Is Jalen Hurts really this, that, and the other? Hey, man, Nick Saban, this, that, and the other. How was it like playing this, that, and the other? That SEC championship game, man. Tell me a little bit about that, blah, 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 blah. And you sit there and you, and you know, you got to get the gab. You've got that personality, this, that, and the other. And you show him that you can get the job done. And oh, once again, by the way, here's my reference, Nick Saban. Guess who's getting that job? In Montgomery, in Mobile. The only place you might not get it is in Auburn. Same thing. Could you imagine walking into a place? Oh yeah, my uh, reference, Urban Meyer. Where do I start working? When do I start working? We don't need to go any further. Here's my letter of recommendation. You can read You can read that from Urban Meyer. So when do I start? That shit is some powerful stuff, man. It's not what you know, it's who you know. That's some powerful shit right there. Dabo Sweeney, here's my uh, here's my uh, resume. Dabo Sweeney is my reference. Ooh. 
You're talking about going into a place for a job in Clemson, South Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, Columbia, South Carolina. Yeah, when do I start? Oh, yeah, Steve Spurrier. Remember when I played uh, football for Steve Spurrier? Here's my letter of recommendation from him. I want the, uh, where, where, where's my, where's my, uh, Where's my parking space? And it better be close to the building. It's it's like that. So that's one of the advantages, again, of these guys. Just think about it, man. Just think about it. It's, it's, those are the things that they really don't think too much about, you know, when they talk about that. Could you imagine, I mean, how set you are? I mean, number one, in the broadcasting field, if you play football for uh, the University of Texas or Oklahoma or, or one of those major power schools, Right off the bat, the local TV station. If you want to get into broadcasting, you're you're in. You're in. If you want to start off being a sideline reporter or or something like that, you're in. Right there, boom, you got it. You got it. If you're if you're a football player, could you imagine being an account executive? You know where you're where you're doing door to door sales or business to business sales. Could you imagine setting up an interview? If say for instance you're the running back. Say for instance that you're the running back in 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 and I keep going I keep going back to Alabama but I'm sorry or Ohio State could you imagine going into a building for a meeting in Columbus Ohio and you play for the Ohio State Buckeyes and you meet the uh, person and you know as far as what sales are concerned you you know when people buy something they're buying you they're actually not really buying the product so much they're buying you more than anything else especially if you're talking about some type of radio advertisement or something like that you know, they're buying you more. So if you sit down there and you talk to the person and you're talking about, oh man, you talk about that game against this, that, and the other in Michigan and this is what playing for Urban Meyer was like and this, that, and the other and blah, 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 blah. And we can do some business and this, that, and the other. And, you know, I can kind of put my ties to when I play football for Ohio State and we can kind of mix that in there with the advertisement and, 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 and the promotional campaign and everything like that. You don't think that's golden in Ann Arbor, Michigan or Norman, Oklahoma or Austin, Texas? Or Stillwater, Oklahoma? Damn, man, of course it is. It's gold, man. It is gold. So, yeah, just these, these kids, man, just think about it. Just think about it. Rush into the G League. Just think about it. Yeah, you know what? In college, okay, when everything is said and done, I get paid under the table by the boosters, and then I go ahead and make a little money with some advertising or something like that. Yeah, it might not be the equivalent to what I can make in the G League. But again, I'm telling you, I am telling you, there is so much more, especially for young black kids. There are so much more as far as offerings for you to grow and become a complete human being and complete be the human being that you want to be, representing your parents, representing your name, representing your ethnicity, representing your block, representing your neighborhood, representing everything. There is so much more to gain in going to college, learning, growing than it is for the quick, fast buck and for the quick, fast hurriness of trying to get to the ultimate goal, which is the NBA. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Oh my goodness gracious, the red fucking rooster. <laughs> I got some WWF 
back then it was WWF stuff on my uh, television as I'm recording this. And as I mentioned before, when I do my podcast, I always like to have TV on mute, but I always have it on some type of sporting event. On either YouTube or I got my fire stick in here. So I got either something on YouTube or Ken Burns or something like that. So I got the Red Rooster versus the Million Dollar Man with Virgil. Remember Virgil? Everybody has a price for the Million, million Dollar Man. Ted DiBiase. Ted changed his life around though. He, uh, he's, uh, now I think he's a preacher. And him and Virgil did not get along. I don't think those two still, still don't get along. But Ted DiBiase has changed his life around. He's now a preacher and... Terry, Terry uh, the Red Rooster, is still a piece of shit. So, if, if you listen to the wrestlers. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Yeah, man, um, the fallout continues from the Green Bay Packers drafting Jordan Love to eventually replace Aaron Rodgers. Comments made by Brett Favre on the Rich Eisen show a few days ago. Again, as I mentioned it before, not going to spend too much time with it. I mean, look, man, I mean... Aaron Rodgers is difficult, man. Aaron Rodgers can be difficult. I mean, you've heard all these pieces and you've heard all these things. And it's like, they all, not everybody can be lying. I mean, yeah, some guys might have some gripes and some guys might have some hard feelings and some guys might try to, you know, paint it in a way where he's the bad guy instead of looking in the mirror and saying, maybe I was the bad guy. But, man, when you're in a situation where it's like you have multiple people talking about, you know, what a diva that you are and some of their some of your weaknesses as a leader and everything like that. I can understand with Matt LaFleur, who's trying to put in his own type of deal in terms of running a San Francisco, Mike Shin, uh, Kyle Shanahan type offense. I mean, I, I can understand where it's like, look, I mean, you know, we're, we're coming near the end here. Now again, 13 and three and 13 and three, but I can only imagine a situation where if the Packers start bottoming, bottoming out to six and 10 or seven and nine, I mean, if there's so if there's a decline happening, yeah, I can see where the Green Bay Packers now, especially with Aaron Rodgers' contract uh, status, where they could be moving on. I always thought that eventually Ben Roethlisberger, when you talk about these Hall of Fame iconic football players or uh, uh, quarterbacks of this generation, whether it was Aaron Rodgers or Ben Roethlisberger or a couple of others, I thought Big Ben was going to be the next guy to do a Tom Brady, which is, oh my goodness, he's played his entire career with one team. I can't believe he's moving on somewhere else. I always thought that guy would be Ben Roethlisberger. Maybe it is, but as of right now, now the betting money is going to be on Aaron Rodgers. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Andy Dalton, released by Cincinnati, per a source fairly close to the situation the Jaguars have reported to have legitimate interest in Dalton. Now, this was a report from the NFL Network. I actually spoke to someone today who's fairly close to the situation. And look, we may have to put Minshew Mania on hold in Jacksonville because there is interest from the Jacksonville Jaguars in Andy Dalton. You, you drew the link between Jay Gruden and Andy Dalton. And of course, Dalton would come in knowing the system much better than Minshew Mania. Potential hangups are salary. As you, and now that Andy Dalton is a free agent, a team might come in and say, hey, look, we're going to pay you this much to be our backup. The Jaguars do have to go through some salary cap management issues to possibly bring Andy Dalton on. But there is legitimate interest there. I asked this person, is there any interest in Cam Newton? There's interest, but clearly Dalton would be prioritized in the pecking order of the free agent quarterbacks. Again, a relationship and probably what he could do for that quarterback room and grooming a Gardner Minshew 
to either be the starter this year or All right, Andy Dalton is. I like that. That makes a lot of sense. Interest from Jacksonville because of knowing the system better. You could. I know the problem could be some uh, dealing with some salary issues, but you know some interest in Cam Newton. But they preferred uh, Dalton would like to be likely be a, a stopgap for Minshew. Now that might also be a, a problem in terms of not just salary issues. Does Andy Dalton want to be a stopgap guy? Now I understand that there's a whole there's not a whole lot of starting quarterback jobs available. Now, as the season gets closer and the games start being played, we don't know what quarterback is going to be injured or, or anything like that. But, you know, as of right now, Andy Dalton, this might be the best situation for him to be a starter. But then again, are, are we going to have Andy Dalton to be a starter just so we can get Gardner Minshew ready? Or is this going to be a situation where if Andy Dalton comes in, plays well, that Gardner Minshew might be the one that's either going to be a backup or being traded somewhere else. So there was a situation where, you know what, well, another reason why he would be a good fit in Jacksonville, he worked well with uh, offensive coordinator Jay Gruden when he was the offensive coordinator in Cincinnati. And Minshew hasn't proved that he can be a starting NFL quarterback yet. I think because of where he came from in terms of the round that he was drafted and the expectations that were put on him, that he exceeded them, that there might be a little interest to see exactly how much farther that he can go in terms of being an quarterback that can eventually lead a team to a 500 record to a playoffs uh, to the playoffs to a playoff series victory to a Super Bowl or such but we don't know about that yet we don't know if he's going to go on that path but I think the Jacksonville Jaguars are interested to see if that's happening but I, I I like Andy Dalton in terms of being a system type quarterback I always put him in the same type of club as say as someone like a uh, an, Alex, an Alex Smith before he broke his leg I mean, Andy Dalton is the type of guy where Everything has to go perfectly correct in terms of him. And is that even a phrase, perfectly correct? Okay, I'm, say, I'm saying it anyway. Perfectly correct for him to, you know, have the uh, optimal success. But I think this is a guy who can win you 10, 11 games. I really think he can. Now, in a playoff series, if you're facing the elite of the elites, I don't think that he's going to be able to stand up to that. But... Again, I think that this is a guy where he's going to be great in the locker room. He's mature. He's professional. He's uh, going to not be a guy who's going to try to alienate or backstab Minshew. But I think Andy Dalton is a guy, you know, he just seems also like a New England type of player. You know what I'm saying? Like New England would, would, would be the type of guy that would also be interested in someone like him. He seems to have a Bill Belichick type makeup. So we'll see what happens going on in terms of, as the season progresses. But as of right now, you know, there's some talk between or the interest or the favorite team in terms of landing Andy Dalton is the Jacksonville Jaguars. Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Quickly, uh, Jameis Winston signing a one-year deal with the New Orleans Saints. It's a one-year, $1.1 million contract, $148,000 signing bonus to fill out the depth roster chart behind, behind Drew Brees. Now, Winston won't be starting in New Orleans, bearing Brees missing inter- injury time. And also, it's interesting because, you know, head coach Sean Payton, he told WWL Radio last March that Taysom Hill is going to be the guy who's going to be earning the opportunity to be the starting quarterback. And I thought, especially the way they paid him this offseason, that Taysom, Taysom Hill was going to be the guy to be the heir apparent to Drew Brees whenever Drew Brees retires and goes into the broadcasting booth. So it's almost a bewildering thought to see why Jameis Winston decided to sign with the 
to sign with the uh, New Orleans Saints. But as he told Rich Eisen, the reason why he goes to why he went to uh, go to New Orleans was the opportunity to work and compete with Drew Brees and learn from the very best. And he's also a firm believer in the room and the accomplishments that they've achieved over there in New Orleans. You know, that, that wasn't that wasn't even, you know, on my mind. You know, what was what hit me easily was the opportunity. And uh, and uh, when I talked to Coach Payton, uh, he gave it to me, you know, straightforward. Uh, and, and he said one thing that I really admire is uh, the chance to compete. The, the, the chance to compete with an amazing quarterback room and uh, and learn from the best. And, uh, and I think that, that really sold me because I've been playing against them for five years and, I, and, I, and I'm a firm believer in, in that room and, and what Drew has done and what he has done. All right, I get it. I get it. It'll be interesting moving forward to see what happened to Jameis Winston. But, you know, as I mentioned before, as of right now, he is a New Orleans Saint. Man, I'm, I'm ready. Are you ready? I'm ready. You ready to do this? Talked about what's happening with the Bulls. Talked about what's happening in the NFL. Talked about the Jalen Green and the G League and all that type of stuff. Talked about the advantages of going to college. I talked about all that stuff. Now, let me get to what I want to talk about for real. Let me talk about what I want to get into, what I've been yearning to get into. Now it's time. Now it's time. about my Georgetown Hoyas. Let me go ahead and talk about my Georgetown Hoyas, a team that I love more than anything else. My Georgetown Hoyas transfer Judy Bile commits to Georgetown, a 6'7 grad transfer forward from Northwestern State. He averaged 14.3 points per game, 7.5 rebounds, hit 38% from three, earning a second team All-Southland was on the All-Southland team, second team in 2019 and 2020. Bile will be the fifth-year senior after stops at a junior college and then Bradley. Taking a look at the scouts take here, he says a junior college kid who does a little bit of everything, athletic rebounds it well, is active and showed he can make shots both around the rim and also from three-point range. Very good. So he also joins a class for Georgetown that includes Arkansas grad transfer Jalen Harris in the class of 2020 recruits Jamari Sibley, Tyler Beard, Dante Harris, and Kobe Clark. On the rec- on the roster next season. So look, man, let, let, let me let me explain something to folks because people are talking about oh man because they missed out on Kerwin Walton. Kerwin Walton was a four star top one hundred player who it came down between Georgetown, Minnesota. He, he's from Minnesota, so Georgetown, Minnesota, and North Carolina, just like Cole Anthony when it came down to Georgetown, North Carolina, and a few others. Cole Anthony chose Georgetown. Kerwin Walton 
excuse me, Cole Anthony chose North Carolina. Colonel Walton decided to go to North Carolina. So it was like, so, so my Hoya faithful, my Hoya friends, in terms of being fanatical Georgetown Hoya basketball fans, are all bummed out. And they're like, oh, great. We could have gotten ourselves Colonel Walton, but instead we get this kid, Chewy Bile, for one year. Great, wonderful. Man, what's this kid going to do? Let me tell you something, man. We don't know. As far as the disappointment, they're all disappointed. We don't know. Have you seen this kid play? I've seen some highlights of him. And of course, in highlights, no one's going to be sitting there taking them that be looking bad. But look, this is what I saw from the tape. This is what I saw from the highlights. This is what I saw in terms of what I was looking for. I like the fact that he's explosive, that he's active, that he can make open shots from what I saw. He has a good looking form. He has confidence when he rises to shoot the shot. So his three-point shot isn't something to where he's thinking about. He makes it enough. He has enough confidence. And when you're talking about the guy who makes 38% of the three-pointers, he rises like he's going to make the shot, which we need next season because we really don't have a lot of three-point shooters at our disposal for Georgetown. So, yeah, am I expecting this guy to come in and average 20 points and eight rebounds and five assists per game? No. But if he can come in 15 minutes a game, 18 minutes a game, and give us eight points and four rebounds, somewhere around there, if he can have a game to where he can score 12 points and give us seven rebounds every once in a while, yeah, that's, I'll take that. I'll take that in a heartbeat. And again, I like the way, A, this class is shaping up, and I like the way that, B, Patrick Ewing, the coach, is leaving scholarships open for the 2021 class where you have guys like Frankie Collins, who's a heavy Georgetown recruit, where you have a guy like Chet Holgren, a guy who is a five-star recruit that's being recruited by everybody. Georgetown's been on him for a long time. We have uh, this kid, Cisse, who's a five-star recruit, who's in Georgetown's final six, along with uh, Florida State and Kentucky and some others. I like that. And everybody's sitting up there talking about, well, you know, if you know, if, if Kentucky's being interested or if North Carolina's being interested or if a Blue Blood is being interested in a recruit, automatically Georgetown should automatically stop recruiting the kid because as we know, there'll be no way that Georgetown is going to be able to recruit this guy if teams like Duke and Kentucky and all the Blue Bloods and the Kansas and all those teams are chasing him. And I'm like, that is such a fucking losing attitude. Fucking losing attitude. Don't sit here then if it's really true that Georgetown can't compete for the recruits, the five-star recruits, but the big boys. Don't be whining and complaining and talking about what a bad job Patrick Ewing is doing if he doesn't lead the team to the Final Four. Because obviously, if you're saying that, well, when the Blue Bloods and the top 25 and the top elite college basketball teams go after some of these recruits that Georgetown's interested in, that Georgetown should automatically quit because they should because they should know better in trying to go after a kid that's being recruited by some of the top tier programs, then what is that saying about your program? Then what is that saying in terms of you trying to be a team that's going to be making the NCAA tournament every every year? And what does that say then? What type of coach are you going to be looking for if that's going to be your attitude? That's ridiculous. One of these days it's going to fall. One of these days, Ewing is going to get himself a five-star recruit. I feel it. I feel it. What Georgetown has to start doing is winning. What Georgetown also has to start doing is playing. It's winning and winning consistently. And they'll go ahead and do that. Now, I, I saw this quote or this tweet, and I'm going to end my podcast with this. Saw a tweet by Jeff Goodman the other day. He's talking about Georgetown roster looks somewhat underwhelming. And it's now year four of the Ewing era. Still searching for an NCAA attorney bid. 
And Georgetown is a pretty darn good job the last time I checked. I'm going to say this before. I said this all this past season. I'm not a Ewing apologist. I'm not. If Georgetown doesn't do well, I want I want Georgetown to do well, whether whether Ewing is the coach or not. So this is not a situation where you know my, I'm, I, I've got my blinders on. But let's just let's just take a look at reality here. Georgetown is year four coming up in the Ewing era. Okay, so what Goodman is already projecting is that Georgetown is not going to make the tournament, right? Because he's like, hey, year four and still no NCAA tournament bid. Name, name me a program, the situation where Georgetown was at the time when Ewing took the job. Name me a program that could have turned the program around to where he would be making the NCAA tournament within two to three years. Name me a coach. I'm telling you right now, it ain't happening in terms of there's no program out there. Georgetown, when Patrick Ewing was hired by Georgetown, JT3, you know what his last couple of years were? JT3? They were he was 26 and 30, he was 28 and 36 overall, eight games under 500, 12 and 24 in the Big East. When Ewing took the job for the 2017-18 season, Georgetown was nothing. That cupboard was bare. Their best player was going to be Tremont Waters. He decommitted. So basically, as far as like players that could have gotten Georgetown into the NCAA tournament, they had nobody. That team had nobody. The first year as a coach with Georgetown, he went 15 and 15. Yeah, albeit it was with a very easy schedule. Gotcha. Understood. Went 5 and 13 in the biggies. Gotcha. Understood. But then he goes out and recruits James Akinjo, Josh LeBlanc, brings in Matt McClung. By the way, LeBlanc, top 100 guy. Akinjo, four star, number ranked number 86. McClung, three star guard from uh, Gate City, Virginia. All three of those guys make the um, make the Big East All Freshman team. James Akinjo is the Freshman of the Year. The year before that, Jamarco uh, Pickett and uh, and Javon. Um, oh my goodness! Come on, man. I think Jamarco Pickett and Javon Blair, freshmen, make the All Freshman team for Georgetown. Right. Second year for Georgetown, nineteen and fourteen, ninety nine, NIT in the first round. I mean NIT. Georgetown was in the NCAA running late into the season. A guy who was starting three freshmen. Three freshmen. None of them five-star recruits. None of them one and done. Georgetown Patrick Ewing starts three freshmen. All three make the all-Biggies team. One is named Biggies Freshman of the Year. And with a squad that in experience still is on the precipice of making the NCAA tournament one week to go in the season. This season, 15 to 17. Well, he sucks. He sucks. Well, if you weren't so fucking ignorant, or if you actually paid attention, you would actually understand that Georgetown, more than anybody else, was hit with the injury bug, was hit with defections, more than any other any other squad in the country. Now, you could talk about, if you want to make the argument about Ewing's coaching ability or Ewing leading a program based on his recruits, because guys like Chris Sodom had transferred, guys like Antoine Walker was kicked off the team, or Chris Sodom was kicked off the team after getting in some trouble. Antoine Walker was kicked off the team after getting in some trouble. James and Kinjo transferred. Um, we had the whole situation with uh, the, um, oh my goodness, Myron Gardner 
and uh, all these other guys who have recruited. And if you want to talk about that and make that as a weakness for Patrick Ewing leading a program, I'm down with that. I'll definitely have that conversation. That's a, that, is a, that is a legitimate beef. No question about it. That is a legitimate question mark on whether Ewing can lead the Georgetown squad to being the team that was making the NCAA tournament on multiple occasions. That is an honest, genuine um, concern. No question about it. But don't fucking sit up there and talk about Ewing's coaching acumen because what he did with this team this season was absolutely fucking remarkable. And the fact that during this time, especially the second or third year as coach of the Georgetown Hoyas, they beat Villanova at the time defending NCAA champions. They beat multiple ranked teams. They beat them on their home floor. They beat them on a neutral site. They beat them on the, uh, on the road. Georgetown would have made the tournament this year if Amir Yurt-Seven and Matt McClung would have, wouldn't have gotten injured, period. You can talk about the transfers. You can talk about the defections. Georgetown was six players, six usable players after everything was all said and done and that nonsense was blown over. Georgetown, if it wasn't for your seven urging his ankle and McClung having plantar fasciitis, that team would have made the fucking tournament. And I ask you again, name me a coach who isn't already in the Hall of Fame. Name me a coach who could have gotten those squads that Ewing was working with, who could have gotten those squads into the tournament? Name me a coach, Jeff Goodman, who could have gotten those squads into the NCAA tournament. Roy Williams, a damn good coach, multiple-time NCAA champion, Hall of Famer. Cole Anthony goes down. That team is not even sniffing 500. That was one of the more disappointing teams of the year, talking about North Carolina, the Blue Bloods. Shaka Smart, at the University of Texas with all their resources and with their fertile recruiting and their and their uh, budget for recruiting and their basketball budget. Uh, did you see some of his games? Remember that game they were playing at home against Kansas State where it looked like they were playing in front of, I don't know, 16 people, 14 of them were trying to uh, go ahead and study and they needed to apply a quiet place to uh, study. So they went to a University of Texas basketball game. Yes, Chaka Smart, the guy that I remember the Georgetown folks were clamoring when JT3 was fired. Oh, we got to get Chaka Smart from Texas. We got to get Chaka Smart. We got to get Chaka Smart. How did Chaka Smart do this year? I know one thing. Advanced Square Garden, where they were ranked. I know that they got their asses whooped by Georgetown. I know that for damn sure. Ewing can coach. Ewing can coach. Now, can he be the guy that leads Georgetown back to where we think he can? I don't know. That question is still up in the air. I'm not going to say yes, and I'm not going to say no. Now, there's been some predicaments, and there's some, been some things going down with Georgetown, which I think it's unfair to have a definitive definition of what kind of coach Ewing is as far as building a program is concerned. We don't know. We don't know. And you know what? This season, I don't know either. It's going to be another rebuilding season. So we don't know what's going to be happening, even if they play the season. And even if they do play the season, we don't even know what this season is going to look like because of the coronavirus, especially if the virus comes back. Well, I'm sorry, not if. When the virus comes back in the fall, we don't know exactly what's going to be happening in terms of teams being able to practice or midnight madness or even the college basketball season is it's going to start. We don't know. But, man, for all you fucking knuckleheads who are sitting up there talking about Ewing needs to be fired and Ewing needs to go and this, that, and the other, again, 
year, three years in. He's been there three years. He hadn't gotten himself in an NCAA tournament berth yet. Really? Have you followed the program? What year should Georgetown have been an NCAA tournament year? Don't say the first. Don't say the third. Possibly, maybe the second. There were some inconsistencies. There were some ups and downs in terms of there were some games like Marquette where they won on the road against a ranked team. They were unbelievable. And then they went ahead and got their asses kicked by, by Seton Hall by 30. And then they got blown out at DePaul. So, yes, there was some inconsistency there. A lot of that can be chalked up to the, the, the age of the players, the experience level of the players. Maybe that can be chalked up also. Also, the Ewing coaching acumen and relatively inexperienced of him being a head coach. All of those things you can throw into the spot and you can debate that. But for those who are talking about Ewing needs to go and Ewing ain't getting it done, and I don't know what Goodman was basically trying to say here with uh, still searching for an NCAA tournament bid, and Georgetown's a pretty damn good job last time I checked. So, Goodman, are you saying, Jeff, are you saying that Ewing is underachieving, and if Georgetown doesn't make the tournament this year, that he should be fired? Ewing is underachieving, and Georgetown doesn't make the tournament. There should be discussions about him being fired. Ewing had to make the tournament in three years. If they don't make the tournament or they just make the NIT, maybe Georgetown made a mistake. Exactly what, what are you saying with that tweet? Because anything along those lines is absolute bullshit, hogwash, rubbish. End the discussion on that one. All right. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast. My name is Wendell Wallace. This is Wendell's World of Sports as we move on in life. Please be good to yourself. Be good to others. Do what you need to do to be successful. Do what you need to do to be good to others. All of that good stuff. And uh, in the next podcast, I don't know what I'm going to talk about. Whatever it is, I'm going to give it to you with passion. I'm going to give it to you with enthusiasm. I'm going to give it to you with intelligence. And I'm going to give it to you with a lot of my heart and my soul. Thank you. Get me out of here. 